As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every basket, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. Holy crap, what a weekend of basketball. We have so much stuff to get through. I don't know how we're going to get through all of it, but I guess the only way to do it is to start. And let's begin with the game that just concluded in Los Angeles. And it was the conclusion of a pretty rough weekend in, well, so-called Staples Center for the Houston Rockets. Sure, and we could start with their stats. The Rockets are 6-5 and five on the season, 5-2 and two since the last 15-60, and 60, that we'll talk about some of that. They are 6th in net rating at a plus 6, which is phenomenal. Nominal. Um, offensive rating, 17th in the league. Defensive rating, third in the league. And we're using ESPN's B- um, BPI now for our stats there. They're still very skeptical. Rockets, 36 wins, 11 seed, playoff odds, 11%. And actually, so I, as people know who listened last week, I've been pulling the stats that are getting closer to stabilized using uh, Christian Arsu's chart of when you get to an R squared of 0.5. So it's basically like you can kind of, Nate can explain that if you really want to. Um, with well, the one thing I'll note on this that is like as you're listening to these, that's really interesting. The ones that are stabilizing around now are some biggie. So mm-hmm. that is your own offensive rating, your own net rating, and your winning percentage. So that doesn't mean you know there's still like you know a lot a lot that can change, but roughly half of you know like that's that's generally what our squared is pretty much our squared of point five is like kind of half of half of it is in is a way of thinking about it, right? Yeah, essentially that half of what it will be at the end of the season is explained by what has already occurred and the other half is basically random chance reversion of the mean. sure and so i wanted i wanted to mention that because one of the ones that was in last time is pace and now since we haven't done those kinds of things for the western conference i want to do that and i thought this was one of the biggest storylines of this game the houston rockets have the slowest offensive time to shot in the nba including dead last off a defensive rebound and they played very well there were a lot of things that i think went went right for the rockets in what ended up becoming a 105-104 loss for them at Staples Center, the Crips, whatever you want to call it. But if you want to use Queen the Glasses term, the Rockets played 87.5% of their possessions in the half court. And I mean, they weren't credited with very many fast break points either. And it is something that stuck out to me watching this game, particularly at some points and when Shangun wasn't out there, where they just they just weren't moving the ball. They weren't even initiating their half court actions that fast. Yeah, they don't have many great offensive creators uh, and that's why Ime Yudoka down the end of this game went to either Shingun post-ups once Anthony Davis was out of the game uh having fouled out or 
the Van Vliet Shingun pick and roll. One of the things we talked about in both of the Rockets games that we've done previously for this show against the Clippers. And uh, I think it was uh, their first game against San Antonio was when they did anything other than that in crunch time, it was just a complete disaster. Jalen Green didn't even touch the ball, basically. And so they don't have a lot of great creators. We thought they might run a little bit more. Maybe when Amen Thompson returns, we'll see that more on the second unit. But they also just don't have a real backup point guard on this team either and van vliet is playing as many minutes as he possibly can and they're just they don't really have that guy who's gonna like push the ball hard in transition run it down your throat you hope jalen green could be that guy he just uh, his three-pointer has been good this season but his two-point shooting has been terrible his finishing at the basket has been really bad so yeah not a surprise watching them seeing the personnel they have available that they play slow the thing that stuck out to me though in this game i watched the the crunch time of it was just these guys remain pretty darn hard to play with and that was the same thing as well or, or not play with play against Against. Uh, and it was the same to me against the Clippers. Now, Lakers outplayed the Rockets by quite a bit. We'll, we'll talk more about their performance in this particular game. But like that's why I think Houston's fruit. We talked about them on, on Friday, too. Like they're, This defense isn't going anywhere, I don't think, as long as they stay healthy. Agreed. There w- will be some regression in the mean just because they've had some intense opponent shooting luck. But I think the, fa- the fundamentals are very strong with them. They're doing a lot of things right, even if maybe they're going a little more right than you'd expect yeah. and they get into people they have great length they can they can force turnovers even if the lakers forced some more in this game and yeah they make life difficult and the other thing for me that's striking about the rockets in that respect is i don't know that the personnel moves they'll make from this point on will necessarily strengthen their defense but the passage of time could end up helping them too so like they might end up prioritizing getting another ball handler prioritize getting more shooting but they have the players in place you know you have like dylan brooks and tari eason and van vliet and i mean jabari smith is kind of he has his moments it depends on what what kind of thing you're asking him to do and jay shantane so i agree with you i think their defense is going to be is going to be strong and like i mean i'm getting closer like some of the criticisms like when i was talking about how they play too slow i'm thinking of the rockets now as a team that's competing for a top eight seat i'm not thinking of them as one of the worst teams in the league even though they could regress a little bit yeah and you just you, you think jalen green like kind of has to play better right but it just i mean like he literally i don't think he touched the ball a single time in the last five minutes of this game that i was watching like maybe it's certainly not in any kind of an attacking zone in oh the yeah court. he he did once and it was on a play that drove that drove me a little bit insane um this was one uh, this was one of the plays that crystallized me going in and checking all their checking some of their data was van vliet got anthony davis out on him on a switch and it was like 15 seconds on the shot clock and the rockets made two passes the entire possession and never really pressed anything it's like one of the tenants not that it's the only thing you can do in these circumstances is you get the teams the opponents only rim protector out on the floor and then you attack and the Rockets never attacked, and yeah. Green had the so ball. Somewhere team. else, not that yeah. guy. You, you get him switched on to your best shooter, and then you move the ball, and and now you can go to work elsewhere. Exactly, and and Van Vliet ended up taking like a five feet beyond the line three-pointer that didn't go in, and I mean, Van Vliet did hit some threes in this game, but it was just the, there were some elements of the process, and and as I mentioned, if the Rockets were playing worse, if their defense were worse, I would, I would let some of that stuff slide, like, hey, it's a young team, or it's a flawed team, they're doing those things, but like, I think they're 
good enough that they can actually be be credible, be dangerous. And so now I'm going to talk about them. I'm going to think about them differently. Yeah. And they're thinking about themselves differently in part because of the Russell Westbrook trade that leads to them having only a top four protected pick. So about the end of this game, and then we can transition to the Lakers as we do so. What stuck out to you there? The dynamics in terms of that the Houston offense was definitely part of it. But also there were some some really weird mistakes by the Lakers late. There was one by Jalen Green that would that was infuriating to me. I'm sure you noticed this too, where I believe it was Cam Reddish had the ball in the corner with like five seconds left on the shot clock. And Reddish gets a step on his man coming inside the arc. But Shane Goon is reacting and the clock is going down. I said it was five when he started the drive. So it's getting closer to three. Jalen Green is on LeBron James at the as the closest pass. Jalen Green not only helps without helping, he just wanders a little bit over. And so Cam Reddish make, gets to make the easiest decision in the world, which is, oh, instead of taking this like hard two over Alpern Shangoon, I can pass the ball eight feet away to LeBron James. He's going to take a wide open three. LeBron makes it. And that really helps establish the Lakers margin. Yeah, LeBron was amazing in this one. He, he was 14 and 19. 37 points. AD is 11 to 15, 27 points. Yet they scored 105 total. Rest the team, they ain't play so good. <laughs> they shot, uh, the team shot six of 29 from three, and LeBron uh, was two for five, and he hit a couple of big ones late. Reeves hit one too. Uh, I want to kind of go through the end of this game as well. D'Angelo Russell really struggled. He was one of eight, 24 minutes. He is not in the closing group. They don't close the Christian Wood. It's Rui Hachimura, Reeves, and then they also went with Cam Reddish out there uh, as well, uh, who played 39 minutes uh, in this game. I mean, it was, uh, yeah, for those are the only guys who were even like remotely respectable. I think those are the only, the guys I mentioned who are on the floor are the only non-LeBron AD guys who had more than one field goal in the game for yes. the Lakers. It's wild. And they also did have 17 turnovers. And you know, it's like the Lakers crunch time offense hasn't been the smoothest. And I mean, there was one play where Reeves is being guarded by Jalen Green. He sets this wedge screen for AD to go from the free throw line to the block and try to get open. Doesn't even make contact on Alper and Shingun. They don't even throw it in the post to, to AD. They end up just getting like a, a really difficult LeBron step back. So the, there were definitely the Lakers offensive process, not amazing, but Houston obviously makes it pretty hard for them. And, and I thought Shingun, you know, didn't really see any big issues for him. Like the Lakers don't spread the floor that much. They don't really put you into a ton of difficulty in space, whereas probably he's going to struggle the most. But I thought he was pretty solid. He picks up a huge charge. They try to run an open side pick and roll. He diagnoses it pretty well gets back in front of ad probably would have been a, a blocking foul but they called it a charge and the lakers had already used their challenge and ad fouls out of the game on that one so now they're small and shangun got three post-ups in the last minute of the game one of them against Rui where he missed a tough hook uh, another one he backs down for a quick two after they were down three we'll talk about the lakers end of that being up three and then after reeves mi only makes one out of two free throws they go into the post to shangun i was annoyed that the lakers not putting lebron on shangun the two previous possessions lebron is on shangun that time he diagnoses it and shangun i mean it, it is tough to go score on a motivated LeBron James in the post. And Shingun like went right through him. Really like quick move, quick spin, gets LeBron knocked backwards. And then LeBron 
tries to jump off a one foot to block his hook shot, and Shingun just floats it over him beautifully to tie it. Uh, what did you think of the decision by, I think it was Dylan Brooks. I went back and looked at the film, but the defensive coaching was on the other end, so you couldn't see it, of whether like they told him to go double or he decided to do it himself. Brooks gets switched off of LeBron, but it's Jabari on him. Jabari did a great job of matching up with Reeves so he could switch on to LeBron. Brooks decides to go double. LeBron throws it to Reeves for a, a three, a couple steps behind the line, but pretty good look uh, to give the Lakers a three-point lead with like 25 seconds left. I didn't love it, especially because the Rockets didn't do the other steps that could have made that a harder shot yeah. for Reeves. Like yeah. nobody, nobody else recovered to him. You didn't force a second pass. And, and yeah, it was a deep shot. The official scorekeeper listed at 31 feet. But no, it was it wasn't that far that's a ridiculous i think i think it was like 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 27 maybe yeah yeah and so that that part of it was what made it seem more like freelancing and i mean i also thought brooks did some freelancing on what ended up being the the decisive play of the game where he kind of went for a steal on a on a a high pass to lebron on the sideline out of bounds and because in that case you know so so in both cases i might have been freelancing we can't you know we can't discern communication intent necessarily but you know it, it it gave lebron on a pass that he can make it gave Reeves a shot that he can make even if it was a hard one and and LeBron I mean as you said like you kind of had we t- I talk a lot about trusting your size like it's the same kind of thing of like trust your matchup trust Jabari Smith has has good size he's in position LeBron can't do a whole lot other than take that shot and make an obvious pass you give him the obvious pass he'll he'll do it and yeah so I, I, I mean Re- Reeves the shot that he gave up to Reeves was a much higher percentage shot than the inevitable step back left with two on the shot clock that LeBron, I mean, LeBron had made a couple, like he was, he was playing well, but he has not shot those three pointers particularly well in his LA stint like that. And, and then also to not have anyone ready to rotate off it. And also he's like way back at the nail too. And then he goes to double team from there. So his recovery back to Reeves was impossible. And it just like, you're just going to give up a wide open three to their best shooter in that situation. This really seemed like a, a mistake to me, but I don't know. Maybe it was Brooks. Well, maybe then, it was the bench telling him to do it. I, I don't know the answer to that. Do you agree with me on the connection between that and the last play where Brooks went for the steal and then basically conceded, conceded the drive, which led to the foul call? So, I mean, there's a lot. Let's just take us take her in through the whole thing, right? So after they get this quick Shingoon post up, up two, by the way, right? So Laker, the Rockets go with what passes for shooters. Lakers don't have AD in the game. They don't want to give up a three to lose it. So it's one-on-one Shingoon versus LeBron. I, I think that's reasonable to say, oh, well, hey, we should, we're we going to trust know, LeBron. Before this, yeah. Reeves makes the three. So the, so the Lakers go up three. The Rockets go for a two with the shot clock off, but they get it really quickly. And then Reeves splits the free throws, which is what led to it only being a two-point margin rather than three. Yeah, and I didn't love that decision either because that you know it wasn't like a wide open backdoor pass for a layup it was like still shingun having to like go through the defense and score but it worked out for them in this instance i would have tried to take the three if i could in any event yeah so but the, it paid off for them yeah they went for the two twice in that situation math says you probably want to go for the two or go for the three in the win on the road particularly but just generally in that circumstance because of what happened the other team has a chance to win in regulation and you also uh, go into ot although ad uh, maybe 
this is part of the math is like AD has fouled out. So we sure. think that if we tie the game and go into overtime, we like our chances, which is reasonable. LeBron had played 40 minutes in this one. So that, that was a different component of it. Uh, but anyway, they take out Shingun, take out Jalen Green, put in Tari Eason and Jay Sean Tate. It's Brooks guarding LeBron. And LeBron, remember, Shingun had kind of just gone through him. And, and LeBron, he's... He's one of the most powerful players in the NBA, and he doesn't really like love using his like strength in the post that much, but either on offense or, or defense. When he does, it's absolutely devastating. I don't know whether it's just exhausting for him or whether that's just like, you know, his basketball brain and, and just the, the aesthetics of how he wants to play. That's just not something he wants to do is just like post up every time. But I mean, Dylan Brooks thought he was and Dylan Bruce really strong dude he thought he was going to be able to like get into LeBron and I don't know that even Dylan Brooks was like trying to go around him for the steal I think LeBron just knocked his ass out of the way quite frankly also a reasonable interpretation and so he just gets the angle Brooks is way on the baseline side LeBron just goes in and then there's no rim protection there with Shingun out now the Lakers of course put all their shooters in so it's not like there was a big man for Shingun to guard but there was really no rim protection there LeBron gets fouled from behind uh, misses the layup misses the first free throw but hits the second and then Houston was out of timeouts with 1.9 left and couldn't get a, a reasonable shot yeah, but yeah I mean I thought it was just a great play by LeBron I, I don't think that Dylan Brooks guards him like incredibly well you know I actually might have considered Jabari as like a better matchup uh, against LeBron and you know throw Dylan Brooks on like you know whether it was Russell or Reeves or whoever the the perimeter guy was but I, I didn't watch the whole game I'll admit so I, I but it's not like LeBron uh was having a bad game and he certainly Brooks didn't really give LeBron many problems in the the Memphis series either Let's talk about the Lakers um, stats here if you're ready yeah yeah we can do them um the Lakers on the season eight and six five and four since the last 15 60 negative 1.1 net rating is 20th in the NBA so they're outperforming their differential right now 20th in offense 13th in defense and BPI still pretty skeptical of uh, 42 wins would be the nine seed and 52 percent chance of making the playoffs and I want to go back to what I thought was a pivotal sequence you talked about you talked really well about crunch time but it, it came early in the third quarter and so Shangun picks up two fouls in the first half you know nothing nothing too big there there was one on Hashimura and I think the other one was an illegal screen where he just like stuck his arms out like the type of foul that frustrates you with the center who's really important to the team then at the beginning of the third quarter he uh, gets a charge which I thought was like on the softer side but I do think that it was probably the correct call and he gets a weird call but I do my instinct is it was correct I'm not a hundred percent on it like I never saw a great angle um where he kind of hits AD while he's moving and AD grabs his face and all that and so Shangun picks up his fourth foul with I believe it was two minutes gone in the in the third quarter and then for most of the rest of the third Houston's offense is completely flatlined and it didn't like dramatically like it, it changed the margin overall. The Lakers won that quarter 32 20 and everything else. But like it's it's remarkable to see how much Shangun changes the Rockets offense just because they don't have anybody who's remotely like him and because like he's a damn good player. Yeah. And I think you noted how slow they are and they don't have anyone to push the pace when he's not in the game and perhaps you would say all right let's go with Fred Van Vliet and Jalen Green and like really try to push it when Shingun is out or maybe a men Thompson can give them that but I I'm not relying on a rookie to be the savior for their second unit offense necessarily but yeah I mean Shingun 23 points 11 to 16 five assists 
plus 21 mm-hmm. in a plus game 20, they lost by one. I, I mean, yeah, that's that, that's pretty insane. Yeah, I mean, they tried Jock Landale, who hasn't really been a big part of things. Oh, by, by the way, yeah. I, we're not going to use a lot of it, which is fine. Jock Landale, before tonight, shooting, converting 36% of his twos, but he's only playing 10 minutes a game, so it's a small sample. It's just weird. Um, One other weird Jock Landale stat, he's taking about an even split of twos and threes when it was three to one twos over threes when he was on Phoenix. So, like, they basically, like, turning him into a catch-and-shoot guy, and I don't think Landale's particularly great at that and it's been a it's been a weird stretch for him i i think at this point the rockets are probably happy with the contract structure they negotiated with him where there's i believe no guaranteed money after this year right. but there's a lot of time for him to turn that train around well and they need him to stretch the floor with that second group because you've got like jay sean tate out there playing and they just they don't have any shooters on this team still right i mean i guess jabari kind of van vliet a little bit i mean, I mean maybe it, that'd be it, it's yeah. dylan brooks who's who i i i he was shooting before today he was shooting 50 percent on threes and i'm like oh hell no he's not gonna do that for this year six of 11 tonight <laughs> Um, but that's not, of course, still not going to continue just because it did for one game. Yeah. So, uh, you know, we, we can talk more about Austin Reeves soon. He's made this move to the bench. He was had an ultra efficient game with 17 points uh, on only 10 shooting possessions, six assists in this one. And maybe there's a feeling that he might be one of these guys who, you know, you can't necessarily play him 35 minutes a game, at least maybe not during the regular season, that he can be more useful in a bench role, but getting more of the offense coming off the bench, and then you know, they elevate him to the starting lineup after they lose their first playoff game or whatever, assuming they, of course, get there. Uh, yeah, so that's that's it on the Lakers. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with a modern design that lets you go further and do more. The exterior is reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing, complemented by an interior built with integrity. The Defender capability is legendary. Whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions, its durability has been tested to the extreme. Powerful innovations like the intuitive driver display and award-winning infotainment system keep you connected. Innovative camera technologies deliver unobstructed views and effortless maneuvering. And robust cargo capacity means more room for your gear. Ready for a wide range of adventures, the Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, and the Defender 130, which seats up to eight. To drive the Defender is to explore with greater confidence. Push what's possible with a vehicle made to go further. The Defender 110. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every basket, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. 
Let's move on to Golden State and Oklahoma City. I thought this was the most enjoyable game that I have watched all year, although I will say I didn't watch this Suns-Jazz double overtime game from today. But there was just, especially because it was the second straight game between these teams and the second straight game between these teams that I had seen in person, there are a lot of things about it I I really love. Let's get into the state of the Golden State Warriors first uh, before we talk about this game. Let's do it. The Warriors are 6-8 and on the season, but 1-7 and since the last 15-60. They have an exactly even net rating. That's 17th in the league, which is notes there are more teams plus than minus right now. Warriors are 15th in offense, 16th in defense. BPI projects them to finish 5th in the West and have a 79% chance of making the playoffs. And because I'm compiling these, the Warriors are 3rd in proportion of their baskets that are assisted, uh, 67.5%. Alright, I've got 800 billion notes on the these two games. Start with the Thursday game briefly. This one's stuff did not play. Golden State starts Dario Saric, Kavan or Looney is brought to the bench and they also started Andrew Wiggins and Jonathan Kaminga along with Clay Thompson and Chris Paul. Clay Thompson was awful in that first game, 1 of 10 from the field and that was after 5 days off essentially because he played 1 minute before getting thrown out of that game on Tuesday that we talked about. And one of the biggest things that struck me in that Thursday game which Oklahoma City won was that Oklahoma City couldn't stay or, or the Warriors could not stay in front of Oklahoma City. Jalen Williams and of course Shea Alexander, big part of that. Gary Payton the second sprains his ankle in the first quarter, won't return. The only units that were really effective for Golden State were their starting group. Sharich is brought in to provide more shooting with Looney sent to the bench and Kuminga and Wiggins actually provide some decent on-ball defense. They could do a little bit of switching, a little size overall. And so those units actually outscored the Thunder. The rest of them where they had these three and four guard groups with Pajemski, who was negative 26. I thought he played well. Uh, it wasn't like his fault necessarily within his capabilities, but you've got like Corey Joseph, Pajemski, another small guard out there, and, and they just were too small to deal with uh, some of the big Thunder wings. And they didn't play Wiggins and Kaminga as many minutes as they could have or should have and had units without either of them out there. So then... And, and the other thing, part of why Clay Thompson had such difficulty was that the Thunder, number one, had Lou Dort on him because he was the number one guy with Steph out. And also that they were bringing their big up on any screen for him, particularly when Kevon Looney was in the game. Looney ended up playing 32 minutes. He did actually have a pretty decent offensive game. And also the Warriors stayed in it by destroying the Thunder on the offensive glass, like 40% offensive rebounds. A lot of it through Looney and, and Wiggins and Kaminga. And so I was like, well... Why is Steve Kerr going back to Kevon Looney? He started Chris Paul, Steph, Clay, Wiggins, Kevon Looney, the group that had started the season. Draymond, of course, is still out with the suspension. Draymond was also out at the beginning of the year with the sprained ankle. And I didn't like that because I felt like their best groups were defensively were with Kaminga and Wiggins. But Kerr kind of really came out with a plan and I, it seemed like they almost wanted to start Looney so that the Thunder would ignore him, so that they were ready to deal with it. And so this this is part of why I started really enjoying this game because Steve Kerr, especially with his team on a six-game losing streak, 
was like came out with some real adjustments and with Steph coming back you know I'm not sure what the state of Steph's mildly sprained right knee was and whether they felt like hey we really got to bring him back here because we got a couple more home games and you know we just got to get right like things are falling apart whatever stuff seemed fine in this game so I'm not saying they rushed him back but like Steve Kerr definitely like took it seriously and so they immediately like Clay Thompson someone got in his ear and was like hey dude you got to get off the ball quickly and every time he got off the ball quickly got it to Looney Looney was a of finishing the Thunder don't have really any rim protection behind Chet Holmgren although I thought Jalen Williams had some moments particularly late in this game uh, another thing the Warriors were doing they got destroyed in the first game by Isaiah Joe who was seven of seven from three and was killing them on the pick and pop so they put two on the ball on Shea Gildas Alexander on his pick and pop they bring a third guy out Kevon Looney didn't really work that well though the Thunder did very well they diced it up Warriors try to go zone to take away the pick and pop. Thunder dice that up for a dunk as well. So they actually had some pretty good counters. But the Warriors also went at Isaiah Joe on the other end. Joe has gotten better. Like he's actually got some length and athleticism. Like he's not a total wallflower on defense. And the Warriors didn't necessarily have like a guy who's going to take advantage of him with power. So a lot of interesting strategic elements of this early. And Warriors uh, are did great to start they're up 75 69 uh actually led 81 63 at one point then the wheels completely come off uh, for them in the third uh anything stick out to you in this game from the box score line it has been a challenging year for andrew wiggins and i mean we, we had talked about how he had basically not made any threes for the whole first part of the year and he was one for seven in that in-season tournament game against the wolves then oh for four in the first game against the thunder then he puts up a big 12 and 19 up from the field five of eight from three so he makes as many three-pointers in one game sorry one yes as many three-pointers in one game as he had made in the entire season to that point on his way to 31 and a, a plus six in a game that the team eventually lost. And one thing I wanted to ask you, I, I, I ended up intending Thursday's game and not Saturday's game in person, was what did you think of Jonathan Kaminga's performance? Up and down. And I think he gives them something defensively, right? Like like he's one of the few guys that can guard Shade Gildas Alexander and not embarrass himself. And because uh, Shade Gildas Alexander embarrassed a lot of Warriors on his way to 40 points in this game, including 10 in the overtime. And but he also had two atrocious turnovers. The Warriors had four straight turnovers to when they were up 15 to let the Thunder back into the game late in the third. But then Kaminga also had some nice moments early in the fourth. But he's just they're just not going to close with him. Uh, the they're going to play Chris Paul at the end of games. He just has the stature like they're not going to play Jonathan Kaminga over Chris Paul. They just will not. And I think they honestly should, as we'll get to, because you're just not going to be able to guard anyone. And it's the same thing. We talked about this a few years ago. Dan, you remember when Lou Williams was like coming off a six man of the year and was like really great in the playoffs in 2019. And then the Thunder signed Kawhi Leonard and trade for Paul George. And they were using him in the closing lineup. Like the reasoning of like why we didn't think he should close. Well, that there was nothing for him to do. Like yeah. you, you, yeah. you don't. You don't need him to do what he's so good at offensively, and then you create you create this whole defensively that other teams can attack pretty easily. And so, yeah. I, I mean, now Paul is way better than Lou Williams, obviously defensively, but he's still small. He's still small, and you don't. I mean, other than specific, like like that play where the where they doubled and got the ball out of Steph Curry's hands. Like other than those specific circumstances, he can be a late game specialist rather than a late game standard. I think that would be an important difference for them. And like I think part of what's frustrating. Lou, I, 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 Patricia and Kerr, sorry, I had Lou Williams on the mind, is 
I brought up this idea a few weeks ago of DFIU, of like, don't fuck it up. And I think Jonathan Kuminga is like distinctly the far on the other end of that. And coaches are fundamentally risk averse in a lot of these circumstances. And Kerr has been reluctant a lot of times to play the young guys. And it's not surprising to me that he's more willing to play the more streamlined kind of professionalized young guys like Pajemski and Trace and, and Jackson Davis than somebody like Kaminga, because the mistakes can be more prevalent than the positives that they bring, especially if it's like not making mistakes out on the floor and everything else like that. And the decision between Chris Paul and Jonathan Kaminga, particularly now with Draymond's out, it, it it's like almost the perfect extreme of those two things where Chris Paul does the obvious things right, but has these like underlying deficiencies. Jonathan Kaminga does the obvious things wrong, but then has these underlying strengths that the Warriors actually need filled. Yeah, particularly with Gary Payton the second out it and right. Uh, uh, so so we'll we'll let's put a pin in that. We'll we'll get back to that particularly from the overtime. And so Wiggins, he gets going. He hits a couple of pick and roll jumpers from the free throw line early in the second. Uh, then he drives for free throws, hits a three. Then in the fourth quarter, he had four three-pointers, basically all of them wide open. The Thunder had adjusted to leave him wide open. Chris Paul did hit a couple of open corner threes. I think one was in the overtime as well. Like he's, you know, I think he's a reliable corner three-point shooter. Like he can do that. And, you know, he does execute the system defensively. It's, you know, he still is a good player. It's just that, you know, playing him with Steph and Clay is pretty tough. Uh, defensively another thing that really stood out to me was the performance of mark dagnall and it wasn't necessarily like the overall strategy at times but just all the little stuff was excellent now I mean, one of the things he does is these guys are running off makes like crazy. Like there is one play where Kaminga gets a layup. Basically, anytime one team gets a layup, they are getting the ball. I would be shocked if he didn't specifically say, hey, if they score a layup in particular, get the ball inbounds quickly and let's bring it up. And at a minimum, they would just, all right, maybe they get Shagudos Alexander matched up against somebody else who can't handle him or something like that. And or or they just get in for a, an easy layup before the defense is set. They did that so many times in this two game set another thing that i think basically every team should probably start doing at this point chris paul loves to run the time down they trap him uh at the last shot of the first quarter with about 14 seconds left they give it to kaminga he goes too early commits an obvious charge on kendrick williams who i think the thunder are, are really glad to have back uh as a, a backup center particularly in this matchup and seven seconds left okc gets the last shot of the quarter and isaiah joe banks a three mark dagnall plus three points to the Thunder with that move. He keeps Chet Holmgren in the game in the first quarter with two fouls. And yeah, you know what? Chet Holmgren ended up playing 37 minutes. How many fouls did he finish with again? Two. 36 points for Holmgren. Four offensive rebounds, two of five from three, six of seven from the line, two blocks, two steals, five assists, 10 rebounds overall, plus nine. Uh, Did have four turnovers. And uh, again, I want to talk about the end of the game and and how he played, but uh, had some rough moments. But I like, I looked at the score. I'm like, holy shit, he's got 36 points. Like, where did this come from? He's 14 and 22 from the field. And, you know, obviously most of those are are plays on the interior. Oh, can I, I'll do Oklahoma City stats before we forget. Great, great. The Thunder are 10 and four on the season, seven and one since the last 15 and 60. They are third in net rating, plus 9.4 per 100 possessions. Yeah, they are. Uh, they throttled Portland today. They had like, what was the stat? They had like over 80% true shooting in the first half. I think Haverstraw had, had that stat. It was like the highest true shooting first half as they won 134-91 in Portland. The second half of back-to-back Portland. Uh, not, uh, I'm not too eager to talk about them later. <laughs> So, yeah, sorry. What are the rest of their stats? Yeah, but we will. Um, So they're sixth in offense, fifth in defense. They are one of only five teams in the NBA that is 
top 10 in both offense and defense at, the, at this moment, which is pretty impressive. And they're projected to finish as the three seed BPI all about the Thunder, 47 wins, 86% chance of making the playoffs. I'll get into some of their big picture stuff after we talk about the nuances of this game. Um, but one that I'll add in right now, just because we already discussed it, third fastest offensive time to shoot in the NBA behind only the Hawks and Pacers, number two running off a of make, number three yeah. off defensive rebound. couple other notes from the meat of this game that uh, another reason why and Moses Moody didn't have the greatest game. Kamingo was up and down. But those guys will actually do something with offensively with an advantage. Like they will actually either like Moody will shoot, even if he's not necessarily like wide open. He didn't hit in this game, but uh he will but he will drive to the basket as well. And same with Kamingo. Like Kamingo will cut along the baseline and like actually finish. There are few warriors who will actually do that. Or again, if he's uh, attacking a close out or he has a slight advantage in transition, like he'll go to the basket and he just will like if an advantage is created by the offense, those guys will actually take advantage. Now they have their own defensive problems. They're inconsistent, all understandable, but it is like, that is just something that these guys need. The Warriors go crazy in the fourth quarter after OKC takes the lead. They score a three on four straight possessions. They're down six, 108, 102, end up taking the lead. And Wiggins is, ends up four of four on threes in the fourth with 38 seconds left game inside the Warriors try for a two for one Steph drives hard J-Dub comes over Steph was only three of ten from two he had a couple of times in the fourth where he was able to come over as a secondary rim protector and bother Curry enough to make him miss the shot that was one thing I didn't think Chet had like a huge impact defensively around the basket in this game in the part in the parts I saw I agree with that not that he wasn't uh, fantastic so Dagnall has two timeouts left. I always complain when coaches don't call a timeout to get the two for one. But I was like, man, 31 seconds left. Like that is tough right there. But he goes for the timeout and sets up a beautiful quick hitting play. One of the observations I had during the game is the Thunder didn't pass the ball well enough, particularly to Chet, where they would have, you know, a Chris Paul or a Steph Curry guarding the ball. Warriors are doing a ton of switching. Chet slips out of the screen. He's rolling to the rim. You should be able to throw that pass to Chet with a foot height advantage on the guy who's guarding him and just get him a layup. And when the one time Josh Giddy does it, he's actually able to make that pass. Giddy did not close this game, however. Lou Dort, who airballed two threes in the third quarter as the Warriors were making their run to go up double digits, did not close regulation of this game. Giddy really was not seen hardly at all in the second half. Ended up playing only 22 minutes. Instead, it was Kenrich Williams at the four, Holmgren at the five, and they played Cason Wallace a a ton as well. So quick hitter. Chet slipping to the rim. Dagnall knows that that's there, but he calls the play. So that's for a lot of times when guys teams are not great passing teams. If you say, hey, the play is for this. This is the first option. You know, and usually guys run a pick and roll. And it's like, OK, you know, maybe I'll look for the big. Maybe I'll look for this other stuff. But if it's like, no, this is the play. And it clearly was because he wanted a quick hitter. They lob it up to Chet. He's right there. And he just smokes the layup. He was Ooh. wide open. It was awful. And he also had a travel underneath uh, as well. And also had a semi-open three with the shot clock running down, throws a a flaming bag, and the shot clock expires. The next guy should have just taken it. He made some bad decisions, missed some layups. So, of course, I tweet out that he didn't have the greatest crunch time. Warriors come back down. They get a Steph... Oh, and can I mention Floater. that yeah. shortly before this, the Warriors the Warriors burned a timeout on what I thought like was a was a pretty weak challenge. Like there was a like I Wiggins 
from what I saw, I thought I thought Wiggins pretty clearly committed the foul. I don't know if you saw it differently. Yeah, you know, Kerr talked about that after the game. It didn't look like a foul in real time. He probably technically was not in legal guarding position. Kerr was like, hey, any other league in the world, you know, if you're kind of backing up like that, you're not going to get called for a foul. He challenged it. It got overturned. I mean, I, it was Shea didn't exactly get like the greatest whistle in actually I'd say most of the games that I've seen this year he's not been getting a lot of the calls around the rim that I kind of was used to him getting uh but and and by the way a foul was called it didn't get overturned it wasn't going to get overturned of the game sorry these were those Gilgis only. Alexander's only two free throws of the game yeah yeah but the, those that was a big in the last like minute 26 I thought it was an okay challenge because like what else are you going to use your challenge on there like I thought it had a decent chance you know decent being what 25 percent it's probably worth spending it there when you're talking about two free throws to tie the game um and Shay's an and, amazing free throw shooter it does it does burn a timeout though I, though I, yeah. I think I probably would have gone no timeout anyway the Warriors had good enough offensive personnel on the floor that it's not like they had to after the after the home ground miss that it's not like you were gonna get something else and OKC could have dramatically changed the personnel if they had called the timeout yeah so they don't really get the two for one I think there was about like a 1.5 second differential Chet misses the layup if he makes the layup maybe there would have been a little bit more but yeah they go no timeout Steph goes off the glass for a floater that just rims out Looney offensive rebound kicks it out and well didn't Looney try a tip in that got that that didn't I, I don't remember that really I don't think it was, I see that in the box I don't remember I that thought being, I, if it, it was maybe it, it was wasn't a little volley volley yeah it was, yeah yeah um but anyway, he kicks it out to Wiggins. Wiggins, wide open three, makes it. Everyone's going crazy. 1.1 on the clock. They bring in the Wizard of Slob, sideline out of bounds, Josh Giddy. Shout out John Hollinger. And I think it might have been Pelton who changed it. Uh, Hollinger called him the Slob Wizard. And uh, Josh Giddy responded to that like, hey, let's not make that a thing. But then uh, Pelton changed it to the Wizard of Slob which I, I thought was a little bit better. And Dagnall, I just loved that he drew up the play for Chet Holmgren for a couple of reasons. One, because he was kind of the goat at the end of the game. And for a young guy like that uh, to show confidence in him is good. And secondly, like they don't really, like Che Gilles Alexander is a good player, but he kind of shoots a shut shot. Like he's not going to shoot a three on the move coming off a screen. They don't really have anyone like that. Even and Isaiah Holmgren, Joe. Yeah. And Holmgren has a super high release. Precisely. Yeah. So he's, he's the exact guy that I think I would have drawn that up for anyway. Goes to the corner. Giddy, I'm sure there are other options in the play, but Giddy finds him in the corner. Wiggins a little late to switch out and he's still there. They, it wasn't really enough time to foul. He goes right into his shot. Wiggins puts his arms up. It's not a terrible contest. It's a really hard shot and lets the air out of the building with a huge three. And then in the overtime, Shea Gilgis Alexander completely destroyed the Warriors, uh, including blocking a Steph step back uh, against him. You know, he's just gotten so much better as an individual defender. And I also love that Dagnall brought in fresh players for the overtime, which especially when sure. you've got like a bunch of, you know, you're for him, there's not really a huge difference between, you know, like a case in Wallace and, uh, and Lou Dort or something like that. So Dort came in with a lot of energy and, and they just smoked him in the overtime ended up winning by seven. Shea hit a bunch of mid rangers. The Warriors just couldn't deal with them. It was over staff. It was, I mean, the problem is he hit one over Looney. There were four guys that Shea Gil Gilgis Alexander is like, oh yeah, I can get an easy shot against these dudes. No problem from the free throw line wide open. That's like a 50% or greater shot for him, I would say. And you just, you got to have more defense on the floor. If you're going to actually win anything as Golden State. And now their bigger problem is that they literally haven't won anything. They've lost seven straight and 
five of those are at home. No, six of them are at home. Now maybe five of them, but they have yeah, one more game in this homestand. No, with, no, uh, they've lost. They've lost six straight. Five of them were at home. Yeah, yeah. They started with seven of nine on the road, and then they that's normalized, and so now they're they got one more game against Houston on Monday. So yeah, uh, I mean this Thunder team looks great. I mean, I th- I'm not sure what they're going to be in the playoffs. So, so I, I have one yeah. more Thunder stat that I want to I want to point out. That oh yeah, let's get it. One, one of the other stats that is stabilized by this point is offensive effective field goal percentage, which is the largest of Dean Oliver's four factors. The Thunder were bottom two in effective field goal percentage in 2020 slash 21 and 21 22. Last year they bumped from the bottom two to 23rd. This year they're fourth. That is incredible. Yeah, what are Chet's top line numbers right now? Because that definitely helps. Like, he's got to be, like, over 20 usage, over 70% true shooting. Chet Holmgren on the season, 68% true shooting on 21.3 usage. He is making 44% of his threes, taking four and a half per 36 minutes and 60% of his twos, getting to the line five times per 36 minutes. Yeah. So, yeah, it wasn't quite 70%, but still, that's like just like we were talking about with Charlotte. If you throw in the center and Holmgren's usage is higher than that, you know, and he's not doing much of it one on one. Like he had a couple of times where he tried to post up on Chris Paul and in the first game and Chris Paul was just like, no, like when you try to lower your shoulder to make the move, I'm going to just shove you really hard with two hands and it's not going to get called and you're not going to move me. Although Chet did score on him once in this game. But so it hasn't really been hardly any attacking mismatches out of the post. Maybe that's something that could come at some point later, but he still generates enough shots and he's incredibly efficient with what he's taking. Like that's a huge boost for your offense to have a, a guy like that out there. So I, I don't I don't know what I think about these guys in terms of their inexperience and you know if they're trying to guard like a Denver, right? Like one of their losses, their one loss that wasn't in the in-season tournament, or actually no, sorry, they they had two losses on these it was Denver just completely destroying them. And you know, they don't have really like any bulk or size. Like it wasn't, a, wasn't that the game that wasn't that the game that was around the time that Jokic said that Chet Holmgren should get fatter, which was great and largely, I mean, to some extent true. Chet, Chet's like, dude, I'm 22. Like people have been saying I'm too skinny for like six or seven years here i've been trying man <laughs> it doesn't come as easily to chet as, as it does yeah. to Jokic. you have you have a mid you have a midwestern kid because isn't he from minnesota um i, I think that's right yeah mid- midwestern kid who who's just that skinny i mean i i'm sure yeah. i'm sure the opportunity has presented it, um, he's having as many juicy lucy's as he can it's still not working for him yeah but okay that's else the, but yeah yeah no so we'll we'll have to go through some of these other teams more quickly here but i was just I thought this game was amazing. I love watching this Thunder team. They are easily like the darlings of the season to me so far. They're good. They're exciting. They're young. I mean, they're not. I don't know that this group is like quite the potential of their last amazing group, but they're not going anywhere for a long time. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with a modern design that lets you go further and do more. The exterior is reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing, complemented by an interior built with integrity. The Defender capability is legendary. Whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions, its durability has been tested to the extreme. Powerful innovations like the intuitive driver display and award-winning infotainment system keep you connected. Innovative camera technologies deliver unobstructed views and effortless maneuvering. And robust cargo capacity means more room for your gear. Ready for a wide range of adventures, the Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, and the Defender 130, which seats up to eight. To drive the Defender is to explore with greater confidence. Push what's possible with a vehicle made to go further. The Defender 110. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. 
At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every basket, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today let's transition to the utah jazz you want to give their stats the utah jazz four and nine after two dramatic losses in a row to phoenix two and five since we last checked in on they are 25th in net rating negative 5.3 13th on offense like that is like shockingly high 27th on defense a lot of that being without walker kessler bpi still likes the bpi seems very very sticky to preseason expectations bpi likes him for 35 and 47 uh that would be the 12th seed eight percent chance of the playoffs and uh imagine you're going to get into uh, a little bit about that offense I am. Um, I want to go in a couple different directions with the Jazz. I've been, you know, watching them. I was inspired to look into a couple things. So first of all, those kind of like stabilizing stats. The Jazz have the second highest turnover rate in the NBA ahead of only the Pistons. They're the Jazz are turning it over on 17% of their possessions, and that median, just to have a comparison point here, is about 14 point, a little bit over 14. So they're turning over on about 3% of their possessions more than the average team. And then going on the defensive side of the ball, the Jazz have the third fastest opponent time to shot in the NBA ahead of only the Bucks, which is kind of stunning that the Bucks are 30th in opponent time to shot. And then the Washington Wizards were 29th. The main thrust that I wanted to look into, and, and for those who've listened for a while, you'll know that I had this operating theory with the Jazz, which is they were really rough last year after they traded Mike Conley. They went 10 and 16 and many intelligent people, many of whom I agree with, noted that part of what the Jazz did was they deliberately took their foot off the accelerator. They improved their draft pick. They ended up getting Taylor Hendricks out of the deal, who isn't really playing for them, but I like Hendricks a lot. I was a big fan of him in the draft. But so the big question that I had with Utah was, how different are they than the team that finished last year? And so I did a little bit of the kind of like the basic comparisons with that is where I wanted to start with this. So after they traded Conley last year, they played 26 games. The Jazz had the 24th ranked offense, the 19th ranked defense. And so they were negative 3.4 net rating and that 10 and 16 record. So the basic parts of that actually are pretty similar. The net rating, 3.4 to negative to negative 5.3, not that different. Um, 4-9 record versus a 10-16, and 16, you know, we're, we're in the same ballpark, even if the, the numbers aren't directly translatable. One other parallel is that the post-Conley Jazz turned the ball over a ton and didn't force any turnovers. That is still true this year. They're 29th in turnovers themselves and 27th in 
reinforcing them. So those parts of the story are similar. The parts that are different, I think, are really fascinating. And so one of those is that they've taken this step back on defense. And a part of the context there, of course, is that Walker Kessler has missed more time than we expected. He's dealing with this UCL injury in his elbow, and he'll presumably play a larger portion of the season, though, as Nate and I have noted on previous podcasts, the defensive numbers with Kessler on the floor have not been quite as sterling as we'd hoped. That's one part of this. And so basically that defensive downgrade, which potentially could be temporary, um, is being offset, if we want to think about it that way, by this real improvement on offense. Offense, where they're impressively they're they're 13th in offensive rating so far and if you look into some of the kind of some of the key elements if you want to think about it as four factors like there's really some encouraging stuff here they're number one in defensive rebounding that was something that was the strength of them last year they're getting fouled. well de- defensive rebounding was not right offensive rebounding no was, offensive was rebounding. and strength. they're number one yeah. in offensive and i think yeah. they were like something like they're they also getting fouled a reasonable amount and when you think about that they're not you know the guard play is you know that can come from a lot of different places but like they're doing they're doing an right job there but as I mentioned, horrendous turning the ball over. And then they're middle of the road in terms of effective field goal percentage. So like I, I think that there so the the elements are maybe maybe a little bit more positive because I would argue that based on what I've seen so far, the defense has more room to improve than the offense will regress. I think Will Hardy is a very good coach. That said, like they're 13th in offense when you consider who their guards are. I mean Keontae George and Jordan Clarkson, who is looking a lot more like himself now, thankfully. But but, and then they, you know, they uh, a variety of guys in their bench, including Chris Dunn and Taylor Horton Tucker, and however you want to count Oshai Baji. So, uh, Oshai Baji, by the way, I just want to say his line 34 minutes, he took one shot against <laughs> a three. That it's was it in the double against the Suns today. Yeah. Um, what so, so I want to do more digging into the Jazz offense a little bit later in the season. I wanted to build up sample, especially now that Keontae George is starting. But one stat I did want to throw out there well, two. They're 17th in half-court offense, which is genuinely impressive when you consider their personnel. And they're third on, there's a fun stat on cleaning the glass called points per miss. And so what points per miss is, it's not, it's a combination of both how many offensive rebounds you get and your offensive efficiency off of those offensive rebounds. So it kind of puts those things together. It's a cool little kind of all-in-one. So they're third in that, they're number one in offensive rebounding, so they're a little bit below in effectiveness there. But then the other one that's really fascinating, and we'll see how this shifts over the course of the year. The Jazz have a 115 offensive rating when Keontae George is on the floor, drops a little bit to about a 113.5 when he sits. And when you consider that it's a rookie who has the ball in his hands a lot more. And remember that the sample here is not just, oh, he's playing with the bench guys because he's starting now. He plays, you know, it's a mixture of minutes for Keontae George. The Jazz turnover rate actually is meaningfully better when George is out there. It's still bad, but it's way better than in the non-George minutes. And the idea of, you know, like having capable guys who can dribble really does make a difference, especially for a young team. And so I don't know yet. I'm going to need a lot more work on whether this is like, you know, what this means. And and it is definitely like worth study and it's definitely worth appreciating. And like when I've watched the Jazz, I've been consistently surprised by how good their offense is. And to me, my preliminary indication is like this will be just even better when they're more talented. Like that I, their Jazz offense is not so good that it's preventing them from losing games. They're four and nine on the season and they've had some real close losses. They could be maybe closer to like 500 if, if things had gone slightly better. But they'll need to figure out the defense. And some of that will be Walker Kessler. But I think some of it is just having better defenders on the perimeter. Maybe that's solving what 
if Keontae George is the answer at the one, having a different answer at the two, I think that's going to be part of it. And there's also the weird thing with the Jazz that they have a bunch of front court size, but they don't really have a three on their whole roster. And that's potentially a challenge. Yeah, they've been playing marketing at the four. And it was good to see him get up 27 field goal attempts in this one after only 10 in the previous game. He played 50 minutes. So uh, that's a total of 90 in this two game set, uh, both of which uh, they lost in close fashion. And good to see John Collins having a bounce back season from three. It's a relatively small sample. He's only 18 to 42, but that's 43%. And so playing him and Lowry together, that's going to juice your offense and hurt your defense. And the only true defensive center that they play is Kessler. And of course, uh, he is out. Let's go to the Mavs here. Sure. Watch their game against uh, Milwaukee last night. What are their fundamentals? The Mavericks are nine and five on the season, five and four since last 15 six. Remember, they had that super hot start. They are ninth in net rating plus three, but they're second in offense, 121.3. And I have some stats on that. 25th on defense, projected to win 47 games, which would be, I believe, tied for third in the West per BPI. 91% chance of make playoffs. So, talked about how some of the offensive stats have, they 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 get the, that over that 0.5 R squared. That is really good news for the Dallas Mavericks offense because here are a couple of a couple of wild stats where they're outliers right now. The Mavericks have the second highest three-point attempt rate in the NBA by only the Celtics. They have the second lowest turnover rate in the NBA by only the Bulls. When you, the Bulls have lots of reasons why they're low in turnovers. And the Mavericks, remember, that's three-point attempt rate. That's not three-point success rate. The Mavericks also have the best effective field goal percentage in the NBA, more than a full percent ahead of number two. So basically what what you what you can interpret from this is that there's a very good chance that their offense is completely legit which is something you and i both expected yeah and they've got some play finishers now particularly grant williams who was a further 410 against uh, milwaukee it was a 132 125 loss that the mavs led by double digits with about seven minutes uh, remaining when luca checked back into the game and luca is continuing to shoot the shit out of the ball he was four of nine from three in this game 35 points nine assists three turnovers but was negative 17 something we'll talk about uh mavs did go cold from three late they built that lead on, on really good three-point shooting uh, in part from tim hardaway jr who was four of ten uh, but they couldn't hit one down the end including some pretty open looks for grant williams like i didn't think that like their offense which they struggled to score out they only i think they got outscored maybe what was it 33 to 16 over the last seven or so minutes of the game basically when luca checked back in uh but it wasn't i mean 16 isn't horrible number one and number two they their process is pretty they took a couple of tough shots but it wasn't like they're turning the ball over like crazy and nor was it like they just weren't getting good shots like grant got a couple of open threes as well uh i mean the big problem of course is on defense Giannis 18 to 26 from the field 40 points and also only three of five from the foul line and at this point just follow the guy <laughs> right like put put someone in who's just gonna follow the guy and but the problem is they only have one guy that is even like remotely trustworthy to guard Giannis in any kind of an isolation right like they're set none of their centers can do it Dwight Powell long a, a Mavs punching bag or, or at least Mavs fan punching bag not the team obviously they love him and I he's always just left me wanting as a defender like he's someone who in theory doesn't make mistakes and part of those that not making mistakes is okay executes his help responsibilities but he just like you know all right he shows up there and helps and then they just throw it to the guy that he just left and it's like right like he's not there's not much crap particularly for a veteran 
You know, he doesn't really come over with like particularly active hands. He's not playing the cat and mouse game. He's not fainting. It's just, he comes over there. All right, I have executed my responsibility here. Uh, you can't blame me in the film. And then, you know, his guy just gets a dunk because the guy coming over to help him is uh, a foot shorter than him. So uh, just not a dynamic defender really in any way. And you know, obviously one-on-one, he's not going to be able to guard Giannis either. So Grant, I, he's not like an amazing option unless he's surrounded by the Boston Celtics defense guarding Giannis, but he'll at least not get like completely put in the goal. Everyone else would or would just get stepped around for a layup or a dunk but uh, it's just so and i think part of it like grant he tries not to foul you know he only but he only had one foul in this game Derek lively ended up with five but you just can't let Giannis go 18 to 26 and only shoot five free throws you just gotta foul him more than that i, I would say although interestingly Giannis, despite the 40 points that ends up negative seven then of course damian lillard i mean they just don't really have anyone particularly dynamic to guard him uh, you know, Dante Exum is probably their best option there. Uh, Jaden Hardy didn't play in this one. Omax Prosper has been uh, pretty much on ice all season. Uh, Josh Green was negative 27 in 20 minutes. Like, oh, he was really the guy. Briefly, yeah. I thought this, and it still could be, but I thought this was going to be a Josh Green breakout season. 51% true shooting on 11 and a half usage. So the lowest usage rate of his career, and not the lowest true shooting because he was really rough his rookie year. And it's been a drop from three and a drop from two. He was in the 60s. Um, on twos going into this year he's at 50 percent right now not getting to the line either good thing they didn't offer him 110 million how dare you <laughs> uh let me see what else i have on this one i thought kyrie irving in 34 minutes 39 points 16 to 29 from the field 13 of 19 from two six assists only two turnovers plus 13 i thought it was one of the most dynamic games i've ever seen him play maybe the most dynamic game i've ever seen him play off the ball even when he was out there with luca number one he really juiced the pace but like the speed with which he was attacking off ball you know he'd come off that screen away from the top you know, that the Bucks would always run for Chris Middleton in transition uh, when the ball's on the wing and catch the ball and if he was open he would shoot immediately if not he would just blow by his defender like he looked uh, he had a little bit of time off uh, had missed their previous game on the second night of a back-to-back I think it was against Charlotte with, with this kind of recurring foot soreness that he's had and he was coming off of screens on the weak side he had this cut in transition where he just sprinted down the lane face cut somebody for a layup he was just like watching the way he was moving off the ball he was unrecognizable from the guy that he was in cleveland and i just really enjoyed the intensity and the intelligence that he was playing with and the way he was juicing their pace it seemed like jason kidd uh, is really like getting him to do that so i i love what he was doing and just the quick hitting nature of his attacks were fantastic and then when luca comes back in they're running a lot in crunch time this set the warriors i don't know if they still do but they called it fist up they'd run at the end of quarter a lot of times where steph curry would come off pick and roll and they would at the same time set a, a floppy style screen for clay thompson to start underneath the basket and go out to the right corner for a three and so they would do that with Kyrie while luca comes off the pick and roll i thought that's a very good set for them to take advantage of those two guys skill sets 
probably more so than the Luca Kyrie pick and roll necessarily because Kyrie's going to have a, a pretty good defender on him against most teams not the Bucs because they don't have any good defenders on the perimeter other than Andre Jackson who started but only played 12 minutes in this game but it was really impressive from Kyrie unfortunately Luca, like he's doing a little better running this year but it's still frustrating interested to look at at their pace numbers maybe actually you can grab those while while I'm talking here but the play that stuck out to me Mavs are down five with like a minute 20 left Bucks miss a shot. Giannis, Brooke Lopez, Malik, Malik Beasley are all standing on the baseline. The ball is being outlet to Luca near the opposing three-point line. Three bucks are behind him. Screenshot tweeted it out. Actually, screenshot it. Five seconds later, all nine players on the floor are between Luca and the basket. He just like Kyrie is streaking like all. He didn't even necessarily have to like push it hard himself. He could have just thrown it ahead to Kyrie. The other thing with Luca too in this game is just there are a few of these effort plays that were pretty bad at one point kid just was like well hey you're kind of our power forward on defense like you're going to guard Giannis that didn't go too good and another play where the Bucks miss a three Lucas has inside position on Pat Connaughton never moves Pat Connaughton just goes right around him and tips the ball in it's, it's just a very you know Luca does raise his hand after that but it, it's very deflating to your team and it's like n- I think not the level of leadership that's required I try to think about guys who have played this way like have they won a championship like wh- is there a ceiling on this type of basketball and you might say hey they made the conference finals a couple years ago playing this way but and three guys that I think are somewhat comparable in different ways but like Luca James Harden Trey Young right all guys who just don't play with a ton of effort dominate the ball a lot they Trey's playing faster this year that, that's good but their defensive liabilities Trey obviously is on another level from Luca or Harden but you're just you're not gonna like you know come up with a reel of Luka Doncic like incredible dives into the stands or James Harden right and they and they also dominate the ball on the other end so there's just the dynamic that creates within the team of I'm gonna do everything with the ball you guys are gonna just stand in one place and if I throw it to you you're expected to convert and then you make up for my lack of effort on the other end defensively I just don't think that's a great dynamic if you're truly trying to get to the best like these guys are all offensive geniuses right like all these guys have helmed top five offenses and and had and Luca I think you know he's not in the same category as Harden because he does do it offensively in the playoffs in a way that Harden doesn't and maybe if you put enough around him like his defensive deficiencies won't matter but I just it's unless he stops just having these few plays per game and it's not like their defense has been good this year as you talked about these few plays per game where it's just like you're tearing your hair out as a coach or what used to be your hair in jason kidd's case it's i just don't like that that dynamic that much and then you throw in the complaining to the refs that's another aspect of those three guys as well Uh, there's just something uh, about it i think that i it's it's an interesting connection to make and i mean it is fair to note that luca had a team that made the conference finals the rockets could have won a championship but didn't like you know there were there were teams that were good enough to potentially do so yeah. they probably do think- win it in 18 like absolutely yeah. But I mean, I'm not going to say it's impossible to win a championship. Yeah, like but, that. but you think about yeah. what those those are outliers. Like, so you need kind of you need the right guys around it. You need you need a lot of talent. You generally need a coach that can facilitate and bring the best things out of best best things out of those players. But also, more importantly, the best things out of the other guys too. And I mean, you know, think about you know how that how that can potentially shake out. It's, it's a, a very interesting thread to kind of pull on a little bit. And I you know I appreciate what Luca does well, but we will and and maybe maybe some of this changes a little bit for him in a way that it didn't for Harden and we've criticized Harden a lot over the life of Dunked On and Luca has the ability to alter his 
trajectory. Let's go to the Denver Nuggets. Well, oh, quickly here, I want to I want to take a look at those uh, those transition stats. Oh, I have them. Oh yeah, um, please. Mavericks twenty fifth in transition frequency, twenty fifth in the proportion of their plays in the half court, but they are second in half court offense. Incredibly, but this is Luca. The Mavs have been top five in all of the last five years in half court first shot points per play, and they've been second or first four of the last uh, four of the last five years, including this year. Here's something else for you, Kyrie Irving on the floor they're one of the better teams in cleaning the glasses metrics they when Kyrie's on the floor they run 7.5 percentage points more often off the of live rebounds than when he's not and Luca on the other hand when he's on the floor they run 4.5 percent or 4.5 percentage points less often off of live rebounds when he's on the floor and so not certainly in this game stood out of like how much they were running what their pace was when it was the Kyrie only minutes and then how that changes with Luca but again like Luca Luca is amazing like he's a better offensive player than Kyrie it's just that this is this is just the one aspect that I I wish he could do uh, better and because it is low-hanging fruit and especially since they have Kyrie it, it would be nice if uh, you know maybe run a few a little more through him maybe Luca doesn't have to have a 38 usage maybe it could be 34 and you can run more and the, hey, if you run more and you get easy buckets then maybe you've got a little bit more energy because you're not making every single play in the half where you got a little more energy for defense. Yeah, let's get to Denver here. Nine and four. Struggling a little bit here now. Four and three since we last checked in. I had that loss uh, against the Pels. Uh, they lost against Cleveland today. Nikola Jokic got a little bit frustrated. Uh, uh, picked up a, a flagrant one. Like I said, Cleveland, I, th- I think, is uh, well positioned to go on a run. They've won two straight now. That they're, uh, I think, with the two bigs, they're a team that's relatively well positioned to defend Jokic, particularly in the absence of Jamal Murray. They are number seven in net rating, 4.8, seventh on offense, 10th on defense. I think their defense has been very good yes. this year for really, really the first time I, that I thought their defense, that I'd seen their defense be good enough was in last year's playoffs. I didn't think it was in last year's regular season. And that's carried over to this year, in part because of some of these bench guys that they have. They're projected by BPI, 52 wins. That's the number one seed, 99% chance of the playoffs. One interesting nugget about them. Yeah, there's really a lot of entendres that you can go for there with with nuggets and Colorado and all that. Lowest free throw attempt rate in the NBA. Jamal Murray's not someone who gets to the line. Jokic, for all his brilliance, he's not huge there. They were 24th last year, bottom 10 for the last five years, but uh, their offense is still amazing. And quite frankly, given the way they play at altitude, it's maybe even better for them that they just score field goals instead of free throws. Uh, They also are not allowing very many threes. 31.6% of shots. That's something that is better than it's been in the past. What do you make of their young players who are comprising so much of their bench group? They're comprising a lot of the bench group, but that's more when we expand it. I mean, you you and I thought when they drafted Jalen Pickett and Hunter Tyson both in the early second that those guys would have a larger role. And Pickett going into today, 36 minutes in six games, Hunter Tyson just 11 minutes in four. But it's important to note that the players who Pickett and Tyson would be replacing, they've largely been available. I think a Pickett is a two, Tyson is a four, though they can each dance a little bit at other spots where 
you know, those guys, you know, the KCPs and the the Aaron Gordons of the world were, you know, we're not that far into the season. Nuggets have played 13 games. They've largely been around. And I wouldn't have expected Pickett and Tyson to be in the full strength rotation. So, yeah. Yeah, Pickett's been play- he played in that game we, we watched on Friday against New Orleans and didn't really feel him a ton in in that game you know the, probably the most memorable play was like Jokic is cooking and he, he decided to try to to play make a little bit but didn't do much he did play 19 minutes in this Cavs game although that was kind of a blow he, he was kind of in the rotation uh, with Reggie Jackson elevated into the starting group he's kind of the backup point guard at this point in time uh they started calling Gillespie there Gillespie Gillespie and Pickett is now in that role he hit a couple of threes uh, in this Cavs game but he's not uh, kind of the thought of him is like oh you're actually going to give him the ball he's almost like a he's been likened to like a 6-3 Jokic big butt almost like a post-up guard who likes to pass like his three is probably good enough but he's not going to like hunt that shot necessarily but he's kind of just out there he also is slow he's not someone who can really push the pace and transition that especially for a second unit point guard that's a a really big deal And, and when you consider the athleticism of guys like brown and peyton watson it would really be great if they had just sort of an ish smith even if the guy can't shoot like an ish smith style uh push the ball in transition point guard get a few cheap right. buckets that way that's just not pick it like he's he's one of these guys like if he's being pressured he has to go to the like uh you know put his back to goal and like use his butt to get the ball up the floor type of thing so i I think he, he's, I don't think he's a bad player by any means, but he just hasn't really, he kind of has to have the ball and it has to kind of be a half court thing for him to be most effective at this point in time. Yeah. And Pickett playing roughly half as many minutes in the Cavs game as he had the rest of the season is, is a good opportunity to talk about him. But the the rookie that has played consistent rotation minutes for the Nuggets, including in the Cavs game, is Julian Strother, someone who I enjoyed seeing i actually saw him in person at gonzaga back when i was scouting chet holmgren and 29th pick this year six seven guard wing i think of him as a two um especially because he's on the skinny side and a couple of good things for strother he's getting his threes up 11.5 per 36 and yes strother's only making 32 percent of them as of now but he was a 38 percent shooter at gonzaga 41 percent his junior year, and the college has pushed the line back so it's not like it's an apples to oranges comparison it's not quite apples the apples but it's something else and he was a 75 percent free throw shooter but something else that's encouraging for strother is he's not taking a ton of them he's only 30 percent of his shots are twos but he's converting two-thirds of those 67 percent is quite good there and i don't know that strother is going to keep making 66 percent of his floaters but that's still pretty good and considering most of his twos are unassisted that's a really positive sign for him quickly on the second year guys that are in the nuggets rotation christian brown more of an established commodity at this point He's playing 20 minutes per game, up from 15 and a half last year. And his role within the offense has, has increased. Went from 13 last year to 18 and a half usage. Um, le- a little bit below league average efficiency, a 55% true shooting. And that's partially because he's not making his threes, 30% so far, and only three and a half per 36. That attempt rate is really low. Yeah, and- we noted in the New Orleans game that, that he's trying to get a few more up. He took a couple off the dribble in that game. Hit, hit one of them, but I, this increased aggression from him i do think it's necessary for his long-term development particularly if he's going to play you know if he wants to be a viable option maybe on the nights that michael porter jr doesn't have it as a a defender and playing in their you know it's basically the three in their closing group 
uh, and and just generally playing with Jokic, although Jokic dimes guys up so much on cuts that if you can't shoot, it doesn't matter as much uh, as long as you cut. But we'll see, right? I mean, the, whenever a guy comes out with more aggression in a new season and he's clearly being told to do that, he's worked on it in the offseason, but you're kind of like, all right, let's just see, you know, halfway through the season what these numbers look like and whether he actually has a skill to do this or, or not. Another curiosity with Christian Brown is that he was a 75% shooter in a, from the line in his three years of Kansas and he's been in the mid 60s both years and we're dealing with a small sample size he's still under 100 free throws in his nba career but that's a pretty big drop and when you consider how he's only making 30 percent of his threes this year something i want to keep a little bit of tabs on the other second year guy who barely played in his rookie year who's in the rotation is peyton watson 14 minutes per game 59 percent true shooting on 14 usage and that efficiency is largely because he's taking almost all of his shots inside 10 feet making 82 percent of his of watson attempts in the restricted area you know not taking many threes not making many threes and then 2.3 blocks per 36 or if you prefer block percentage which is like two point block rate 5.4 percent though his defensive rebounding numbers are pretty terrible yeah but their overall defensive rebounding numbers i mean if he's playing next to Jokic, they're they're gonna get plenty of defensive rebounds now this is a fascinating stat overall denver traditionally one of the worst teams in the league in terms of opponent percentage at the rim right now they are seventh in the nba allowing only 63 percent shooting and you're like all right well they probably have like the worst shot blocking center rotation in the league how are they doing that well peyton watson is a big part of that 2.3 blocks per 36 uh, as you mentioned and seth's rim protection stats uh, are out right now and some really interesting stuff from that peyton watson is in like the top 20 in the whole league in his points saved per 100 metric and that's regardless of position like we're not even adjusting for that aspect and opponents are shooting only 44 percent at the rim it's contest percentage is 18 percent. you know like the best centers are kind of in the 30 to 40 percent range but 18 percent is decent for a secondary guy and when he's around the basket and actually jumps like guys feel him like they are have not been very good overall opponents are shooting only 50 percent at the rim when he is in the game mm. so the we'll see uh, how those numbers evolve but he is looking like he is one of the rare fours who actually causes problems for opponents around the basket defensively three-point shooting is kind of rough you know again we'll this isn't going to bother Denver during the regular season, particularly when Jokic is on the floor. This is a big part of why I think it's so important to have your best rim protector not guarding Nikola Jokic. Because particularly when you've got Brown, you've got Watson, these guys who are great cutters and finishers, but can't necessarily shoot that well. You need to have, or you've got like Aaron Gordon trying to duck in against smaller players or whatever. You need to just have your best rim protector. Like there are guys that that guy can kind of slough off of and stand out of the rim. The reason isn't even necessarily like stop Jokic one-on-one better, although that helps. It's more just you take away Jokic's passes to guys who are wide open under the basket by having your best rim protector able to help out uh, on those cuts. Completely agree. Uh, where do you want to go from here? Set the clips four and seven, one and five since we last checked in on them. They are 11th in net rating, though, because they played the Spurs. <laughs> they are 19th on offense, sixth on defense because they played the Spurs. Uh, sorry, just kidding. Uh, they project for 45 wins. That would be the fifth seed, 78% chance of the playoffs per BPI. We talked about how Russell Westbrook went to the bench in that Houston game, which they barely held on to win, although they did control that game at times. The rotations, kind of interesting 
you know, the starters now Terrence Mann rather than Westbrook. They still just don't really have on this team an off-ball shooter that you particularly fear other than Norman Paul. And I thought it was noteworthy that he was in their closing group rather than man at the end of the going against the Houston right there isn't that you know on ball pick and roll threat that you're just totally scared of so maybe they would go with man in that instance Russ played some minutes with James Harden but was largely staggered from him in that first game and the minutes that they did play together weren't particularly productive they had a brief negative seven stretch in the third uh, which enabled Houston to get back into it yeah can I make a point just brief one looking yeah. through this on popcorn machine which is a really cool resource one of the to me more blatant fixes that Tyloo can go to is having the hard having hard and only minutes which they didn't really do in this one they largely paired Harden with Kawhi Leonard is play James Harden with Zubats as your and you can get make that kind of the offensive foundation of a second unit rather than having to like have Paul George only minutes which can work but it just seems to me like you have a clearer theory offensively and credible credible defensively because you're largely playing against backups when you have Zubats out there so you have a rib protector and you have a guy who can feed him well and hard yeah and I think most of Harden's minutes were paired with Zubats and, and he was really good feeding Zubats down the end as we talked about on Friday when they closed the game on the 12-1 run I'm talking more like the, the you, you could structure it a couple different ways but like yeah. beginning of the beginning of the second and fourth that would be one way you could do it so you you rest Harden earlier in the fourth and you are early in the third and the first and then you bring him back for that yeah and I think it, they brought in Tice you know obviously it's a tough call for him to play and he, and he was not very good in this first game having just signed earlier in the day but Tice is not really even at his best the type of center that James Harden works best with at this point in his career Tice famous for being one of the bigger practitioners of that Gortat screen in the lane, which they've kind of cracked down a little bit, but you can still, you get chances to do it still. But Tice is not going to really go up and get an alley-oop. Like he's not a great finisher. Zubats is probably the best of their finishers at center, but even he is pretty dicey there he's not gonna like sky to go get the ball his hands aren't great he'll kind of like get stuck pump faking under the rim Plumley is not like doesn't get up the way he used to and also was probably an overrated finisher even at the best of times so they don't have that great pick and roll center to play with James Harden I would say necessarily talk about uh, uh, one other thing rotationally Amir Coffey is someone who I think has shown the ability to at least guard and shoot reasonably well and he's just been completely on ice for them essentially since it seemed like he re-signed for like a pretty good contract like he's he gave them good minutes I want to say it was in the 21-22 season maybe even a little bit in 2021 and he just like hasn't played the last two years that's very he could at least he could at least be like given a shot maybe he will finally get one if there are injuries but you know then maybe they'll go to bones highland instead bones also out of the rotation what do you make of Kawhi leonard here very early of course he did have surgery in the offseason but he had a full year last year as well uh coming off the acl and you'd think that he in theory he's older but he also didn't have a major surgery it was clear at the start of camp he's playing back-to-backs 
overall numbers are not great. Anything stuck out to you when you look at his numbers, the way he's being used this year versus last year? A little bit of a downshift in terms of how often he's running pick and roll from 23% of Kawhi's possessions down to 19. That's And and you think about how that also kind of affects the role. And we saw also a, de- a decrease in isolation for from 19% to about 15%. And you can say generally, you know, like isolation is not always the most efficient way to go, but Kawhi is quite good at it. And really what that's, what that's doing is it's making him, you know, more of a, I don't, complimentary is not the right word for it, but it, it's making him less of an active player, I guess is pro- probably the way to put it within the offense. And Kawhi, one of the challenges of dealing with him is that when he's not active, he's not doing quite as much because of how his game fits in. Yeah, he just hasn't been doing as much on ball, down in pick and roll, down in isolation. Assists are way down, mm. which I, I think is... Um, you might say, well, yeah, like Kawhi is not like some unbelievable passer, but I thought he had gotten much better since his San Antonio days uh, as an assist man, and, and particularly in his first year, for his year in Toronto, and then his first year with the Clippers. Usage, by the way, just for context, that first year with the Clippers, his usage is thirty four percent, and now it's down to twenty five. They have these other guys, uh, of course, but I do think that Kawhi, because of his scoring ability, when he does pass out a pick and roll, that he's generally getting a guy wide open. His volume as a pick and roll passer is not the same as a Harden and his off screen stuff is off a little bit more or or, or is up a little bit more excuse me it's not like guys he's being like set up for like you know some amazing like backdoor cuts uh, or anything by West because recall he's playing with Westbrook for the whole season too that was and now Harden and and sometimes Harden and Westbrook although I don't think we're going to see very many of those minutes going forward but he still has been effective in pick and roll this season hasn't been as effective in ISO but still over a point per possession there so he's over a point per possession in ISO over a point per possession in as pick and roll ball again we're very early in the sample here one place where he's been much less effective is in transition I dove into that a little bit more and that's because he's not pushing the ball as the ball handler as much you know that's been either Harden or Westbrook and just for whatever reason he just hasn't been as effective like running the lanes part of that is just because he has like missed all of his jumpers in transition so we'll keep an eye on that one that's actually his his most common play type 21 percent of his offense up from 15 percent a year ago they are trying to run more so when you consider also that he's his usage is down like so that that means his half court usage is down quite a bit and hey if they can keep it going in the regular season and Harden can kind of get into the playoffs and then all right now we're going to ramp up Kawhi okay like the uh, I'm not going to tell you that that's not going to work but I, I'm also not ready to conclude like hey Kawhi now I will also say at the end of games Kawhi has not been particularly effective you know that's probably something to watch uh, as well and but part of that is because how many times has Kawhi Leonard run pick and roll at a smaller player to get the matchup it seems like most of the times they've been like trying to set him an off ball screen which he's not amazing at coming off the screen and then he ends up kind of stuck against like a pretty good defender and he's at this point in his career particularly against like the best defender on the other team guarding him like Jabari Smith for example on Friday and so that doesn't look that good uh, uh now maybe it can get better but like that to me Kawhi going running pick and roll against a small guard and playing out of that is their best offense and with James Harden in the fold Westbrook in the fold they're just not going to run that as well for those who embrace the impossible the Defender 110 is up for the adventure this iconic vehicle has been redefined with a modern design that lets you go further and do more the exterior is reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing complemented by an interior built with integrity 
The Defender capability is legendary. Whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions, its durability has been tested to the extreme. Powerful innovations like the intuitive driver display and award-winning infotainment system keep you connected. Innovative camera technologies deliver unobstructed views and effortless maneuvering. And robust cargo capacity means more room for your gear. Ready for a wide range of adventures, the Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, and the Defender 130, which seats up to eight. To drive the Defender is to explore with greater confidence. Push what's possible with a vehicle made to go further. The Defender 110. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every basket, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today let's go to the phoenix suns you want to give their stats suns five and three since we last checked in on them helps have Devin booker back they've won three straight since his return net rating plus 2.5 10th best in the association eighth on offense 18th on defense they project for the five seed i guess a tie with the clippers at 45 and 37 81 percent chance at the playoffs they signed all these minimum guys we liked some of these signings how those guys doing so far in part because of the absences of booker and or beal at different moments of time eric gordon has played by far the most of those he had 328 minutes on the season before the 40 he played in the double overtime game 41 sorry don't want to shortchange him that extra minute and things are going pretty well for for gordon offensively 56 percent true shooting on about 20 usage the highest usage rate gordon's had since the 2020 21 season hmm. and big part of that is that gordon is making 57 percent of his twos and like so many guys i mean this is something i don't know i always think of damian lillard with this but there's so many gordon has really improved as a finisher throughout his career started started mostly in the high 50s in the restricted area but has been closer to 70 percent in recent years including 69 percent this year so i would say gordon i don't think his role you know he started and he's been starting a lot because they've had perimeter players out i don't know that that's going to be his ideal role but he can definitely be a part of the rotation he has shown at bare minimum that he still has it even if it's not the same player that he was which is extremely encouraging i was probably most excited about Utah Watanabe of the Suns minimum guys. He's averaging about 20 minutes per game, 55% true shooting on 13 usage. That's low, but identical to what he did last year in Brooklyn. The drop-offs for Utah are in terms of his 
three-point conversions. He's taking more per 36, but he made 44% last year. He's down to 37% this year. And then Watanabe taking way fewer twos than last year, and his percentage dropped almost 20%. He's went 57% to 42. That's a, that's a pretty precipitous drop. I think where it's just small sample size theater, especially when you guys playing 20 minutes per game. And then Josh Kogi, he started about half of his 12 games. I actually had forgotten that he was a minimum guy until I went into the salary sheet and was like, oh yeah, he is technically 22 minutes per game. He His usage rate has dropped, which is probably good just because you think about the shots that Kogi can create and everything else. Um, and he's more efficient. The difference is that he's, he's making um, 56% of his twos as opposed to 44% last year. Still not making threes. And Josh Kogi, you don't see this often with a small guy. More offensive rebounds in raw numbers. More offensive rebounds than defensive rebounds. That is pretty remarkable in terms of a number. Uh, Drew Eubanks, 71% true shooting, 16 usage, and he's been an efficient finisher and getting more shots up. He's taking a three here and there. Uh, we noted on Friday's close some games in Sede Nurkic, and so for his usage to go up, he's been able to play off of KD off of Booker to the extent that he's played with Booker and just to get efficient finishing around them that use of Nurkic is just never going to give you that type of like a 70% true shooting number and so if the defense is you know they, they get a little more movement in the half court you know, Nurkic is a little bit better passer I don't think Eubanks is a particularly solid decision maker but I do think that Eubanks is probably the better guy, particularly because he can switch a little bit more. They can go to that when KD is really locked in. He can give you some rim protection behind those Eubanks switches. So I do think if you're going to pick between he and Nurkic to close, I'm probably going to go Eubanks at this point. And we'll see whether they try to work in a Bates-Diop or or one of these other forwards that have a little more strength. But they're Bates-Diop, Nasir Little, like those Watanabe, like none of those guys have really distinguished themselves that much yet so you think yeah, they're they, probably going to go three guards kd and a center i mean that seems like what it's going to be for now i didn't mention i i have the stats but batesy up 21 minutes per game 54 percent true shooting on 12 usage way more than the spurs last year who let him explore the studio space a little bit and batesy up 56 percent on his twos last year down to 52 percent and epm i wanted to see how how they were doing on his defense about the same as last year so he was a surprisingly strong positive so he's 80th percentile at a, about a plus a plus point eight in defensive EPM last year. Not that it's gospel, but this, you know, can be useful. He's also plus at point eight so far this year, but because of kind of, I guess, where the splits are, he's higher per- percentile wise, 87th percentile so far this year. Yeah. I was about to be like, well, you know, maybe we shouldn't look at EPM yet. And I'm like, ah, well, you know, what are we 10 days away from awards? So <laughs> Um, One more crazy stat here for you, Danny. KD and Devin Booker have only played 174 possessions together this season, plus 1.1 net rating. That is a 132.8 on offense and a 131.6 on defense, in part due to that crazy set that they just played against the Jazz. But that's, uh, (laughs) I mean, just e-field goal percentage, 65%. I mean, they've shot complete lights out from three the whole team has uh in in these last few games and then the other thing is they are turning opponents over on 5.6 of opponent percent of opponent possessions <laughs> these guys are the, probably the, not gonna force a lot of turnovers yeah now worth noting that the primary starting group that those guys have played together is Nurkic, Grayson Allen, and Eric Gordon. So yeah, probably not going to force a lot of turnovers with that group. 
but the, they also have a 145 offensive rating in the 51 possessions those group have, have played again. This is uh, not predictive, simply descriptive of what has occurred so far. Need we be descriptive of what has occurred in Portland? 3-10, and 0-7 and since we last checked in. And we talked about how they just got completely destroyed by OKC today. Negative 11.4 net rating. I mean, they've had a couple of just total blowouts lately. 30th on offense. Actually, 20th on defense is quite respectable i would say now part of that is just that all of their good offensive players are out so uh, matisse seibel and Tumani kamara who actually as i talked about in the lakers game a little bit how like his effort level and defense like he looks like an actual like real wing defender right now and you know, deandre ayton can take up some space in there at least like they did have robert williams for a while so 20th on defense is is good i i think as particularly they're gonna make some trades probably and they'll bring back simons and and scoot and it'll get a lot worse defensively but hopefully a little better on offense they're projected to win 25 games and they have a zero percent chance of making the playoffs and i'm in full agreement with that number what we got on these guys first a couple of big picture stats um the, the blazers are not only last in the league in offense um effective physical percentages i talked about one of the stats that's kind of has that higher higher or squared now they have the worst effective physical percentage in the league by more than a percent and a half like they're just a mile behind everyone else there yeah. and the blazers connected to that the second lowest proportion of their made baskets are assisted um 56 roughly and i mean it's kind of surprising that it's that high when you consider the how few people there are to make those assists and what i wanted to look at is i wanted to look more basically at deandre Aiden's shot profile this year versus time with the suns portland's guard situation means that this isn't this isn't a definitive deandre jordan analysis but something that i wanted to see well i hope so because we're talking about deandre Aiden. fair enough um <laughs> before we get kind of into deeper stuff last year Aiden 62 percent true shooting on 23 usage that's dropped to 57 percent true shooting on 17 usage this year yeah and, and that 57 percent true shooting for a center that is awful right awful. that's like that that's basically like a guard having like 50 percent true shooting and so when you look at the like the synergy play types one notable thing that sticks out is like we talked about this a little bit with Kawhi DeAndre Ayton had 19 percent of his possessions as a cutter last year in Phoenix yeah that's Down. Which is basically like dump offs around the room. That's not necessarily exactly. like, oh, great back cut, DeAndre. Back it's cut. more exactly. just like someone drives or makes him makes him a great pass and he finishes. And those are very effective plays. And and you could argue based if they're jumped offs that they're more effective for bigs sometimes than smalls. And so you're replacing, you know, you're replacing effective possessions with less effective possessions. And while Aiton was never great at finishing those kinds of things, you have that. And then instead, what he's doing is you know, like just a lot of the lower usage stuff, you know, they're using him less in pick and roll. It's a slightly smaller portion of his, but he's doing fewer post-ups than he did before. And so it's the, you know, miscellaneous plays and transition that are taking up more. And yeah, you could argue it's, it's spacing and obviously guard play is a bigger part of this, but like he hasn't really been effective in any facet of like synergy split offense other than putbacks, which bizarrely was one of the things that he was not particularly efficient at last year. So, but we're dealing with small sample size here he's made 14 of his 19 putbacks but that is pretty good and if yeah, i'm we're, taking a look at, at his defensive stats here while, while you continue uh -oh. on um if we're if you want to do it on shot location ayton is converting about the same proportion in the restricted area but that was only 31 percent, which is seems extremely low of his possessions are of his as, as a son to 20 
53% this year and shifting, you know, almost 10% of your shots from restricted area to floater range and mid range does not work for anybody else's offense. And Nate, do you want to take a break from looking at his defensive stats to do a little, to do a little piece of trivia? Desperately. Going into today's games, because I did, I compiled these stats on Sunday morning. DeAndre Ayton has hovered around three field free throw attempts per 36 minutes, which is really low. This year, he is at 0.7 free throw attempts per 36 minutes. He is. <laughs> He has taken seven on the season in 384 minutes. Okay, so here, here's the trivia question. What? The, only- I mean, hold on a second. He's got seven free throw attempts in the whole year? Yeah. What the fuck? <laughs> He's made six of those seven. <laughs> he has more blocks than free throw attempts. Um, okay, so here's the question. There are only four players in the NBA, and as you could guess, none of these are big, who have over 300 minutes of play this year and have attempt have a lower free throw attempt rate per 36 than eight. Any guesses on who they are? So lower three th- uh, free throw attempts per 36. Yes. <sighs> I mean, even Nikola Vucevic is not going to be that bad. Correct. Vuce is at one point. All right. I might might need like a little hint here. Can you give me uh, um, what position do these guys play? They all, most, these, are, these are all guards? They're forwards, actually, mostly. Hmm. Um, yeah, Lonzo Ball hasn't played this year. Two of, so two, of them play, two of them play on the same team in the Atlantic Division. The same team? Royce O'Neal? Yes. Wow, that's pretty good. Uh, that was not bad right there for eleven uh, thirty-five p.m. Pacific. Um, and then is Ben Simmons the other one? No, Dorian Finney-Smith. I don't think Ben Simmons has played three hundred minutes. Oh, oh yeah. Sorry, sorry. That's right. Yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. DFS would be the obvious other one. Um, uh, I'll, I'll give okay. you the other two. Eric Gordon. Eric and- Gordon. Huh. Eric Gordon. Um, well, I don't know if the uh, let's see, what do you do in the Suns game? Because this was about no, he only took two. He only took two free throws in forty-one minutes, so that's actually not going to increase his rate very much. Um, and Tory Craig, point uh, six. Remarkable. It's absolutely remarkable that it just yeah, and like you know the post up. He's doing more of these post ups, and those haven't been efficient. It's just oh, let me see how many he had tonight. Just because now now I'm invested. He had two tonight. Okay, so he upped his rate to like maybe point eight. Oh man, do you want to talk about his defense, or should we go? I was thinking. Well, I I got one more thing for you here. Yeah, sure. Uh, Among centers who have played more than 150 possessions. Okay. DeAndre Ayton's contest rate, the percentage of opponent shots at the rim that he is within five feet of, is fourth from the bottom. Here's a good one. Would you care to guess the other three gentlemen? I will give you a hint that two of them are guys who are center size, but really probably play more forward. DeAndre Ayton contests only 21% of opponent shots around the rim as a center. You know, again, really a respectable number for most of those for most centers is like 30% or above like pure centers. Even, you know, like an Al Horford type who's switching out of the perimeter more like that's he's still at 25%. Uh, interesting though, Rob Williams, when he played was 25%. Like they, the Blazers are doing a little bit more switching. So that's part of this, but uh, so yeah, you, you want to take a guess on these guys? Mm, so it's over 150 possessions. Okay. Yeah. I'm not very spend skilled, too very skilled players. Center size don't always play center. Zion? Not really center sized. Uh so yeah, he is he is not listed as a center on, on Oh, such. okay. Oh, oh, he's listed as a four. Okay. And then the other gentleman was the youngest player in the league last year. Oh, Dirk. Yes. Yeah. Another guy who does a, a fair amount of switching, but also like not the greatest defensive recognition. I'll give you the other two. Sure. Carl Anthony Towns. That makes sense. And Victor Wembanyama. I, that was actually going to be somebody I guessed. 
Yeah, but we'll we'll save. I don't think we're going to talk about him too much on the Spurs section this week, but that obviously his rim protection will be a a subject of one of these analysis in the future. The the current subject of this analysis, um, we're, we're going to cover two teams. One, but I'll start with the stats for the New Orleans Pelicans. They are six and seven on the season, two and six since the last fifteen and sixty. Negative five point one net rating is twenty fourth in the NBA. 23rd on offense, 21st on defense. BPI, we talked about how it's sticky, still projects them to finish with 42 wins, which would be the nine seed. 50-50, chance of making the playoffs. Yeah, Pell's been up and down. They led by 13 with about seven minutes to go on Saturday night against Minnesota. Minnesota roared back against them. They, of course, had that nice win the previous night against Denver. Zion Williamson not playing on the second nights of back-to-backs. They played him in the in-season tournament game, which was bigger. They won that game. Uh, Probably win this one if they have Zion as well. But Zion starting to round into form, as we talked about on Friday. A lot of interesting stuff down the end of this game. Again, let's not forget some of the other absences as well. Still no Jose Alvarado, no Larry Nance. I think it's a rib this time for Larry Nance. Fractured rib. Yeah, so you've got Jeremiah Robinson Earl on a two-way getting tick. You've got Jeremiah Robinson Earl next to Cody Zeller in the first half getting tick. You've got them playing Matt Ryan, Jordan Hawkins. Both those guys have had their moments this season and, and give them a needed shooting element. Dyson Daniels is playing a lot. I thought actually Dyson Daniels has, has had some moments the last couple of games as well. He had a couple of big floaters as they almost uh, were able to hold on in this game, attacking closeouts. I've liked that he's been more aggressive just going to the basket rather than shooting the three when he's not necessarily hitting that three-pointer yet. Jonas Valanciunas had a second straight great first half. Uh, but as it tends to happen for centers of his ilk, they just kind of don't go to him as much late in the game. And he also was uh, in foul trouble. I, I thought his absence really hurt them to some degree offensively. That's really where they started to struggle. Wolves make their big comeback, mostly with Rudy Gobert out of the game. Carl Anthony Towns at center. No Nas Reed in the game either. So they're going, they go zone. Kyle Anderson is out there. They had some of McDaniels out there uh, with this group as well, and Anthony Edwards out there. And it was was an interesting zone where they would stay in zone. I'm not sure if every possession they were switching out to -to man-to-man after a couple of passes or if there was a trigger where a couple of times they threw it to the center at the top of the floor, and that's where if Towns was at the free throw line, he would just match up one-on-one against the center, and then everyone would match up with whoever was next to them. But it did seem to confuse New Orleans. didn't help that Brandon Ingram and Valanciunas are both out of the game at this point. So that's part of how they got back into it. By the time Willie Green went back to Brandon Ingram, uh, Wolves are you know, down six after being down 13. Ingram, I thought, was a little bit of a struggle late to try to get shots against Jaden McDaniels. Rudy Gobert comes back and he hits an impossible fader off the backboard. Total luck shot to as to tie the game at 119 with about a minute left after the Wolves went up. Big thing that I took away from this one, though, Carl Anthony Towns at the end of the game. I thought he was really good, as he was in that Warriors game. On Tuesday, hits uh, the biggest three of the game. They were running up a play where they had Anthony Edwards 
get a screen from Towns, and then Gobert would hammer the guy who had just switched on to Towns with a back screen. Towns would flare out. He hit a three a couple of times on that play. One of the times he was being guarded by Ingram, and Ingram was just, his defensive effort level was absolutely embarrassing in this fourth quarter. He just did not even make the slightest attempt to get through any screen that he was hit with. Even when he was like matched up one-on-one against Towns at the top of the key, he's basically just like legs straight, bent over at the waist, just like leaning on Carl Anthony Towns. Like, Hey, I'm a little tired. Can you, can you just like (laughs) help, help, help hold me up? It was just like, not a stand, just the, the, the lack of intensity was really, really bothered me. He had a big offensive load in this game, but in crunch time, you just had to be better than that. And Towns on the decisive play with five seconds left, Gets matched up against Dyson Daniels off a, a switch on the inbounds. Dyson Daniels, everyone knows, hey, Carl Anthony Towns, you cannot let him go right under any circumstances. And Carl Anthony Towns, as he did a few times in this game, just took what the defense gave him, went left. Not going to finish with his left hand, but he was comfortable going with the floater, going left. Uh, off the glass nobody really stepped up enough uh, to help off of gobert i thought after gobert had just bricked a couple of free throws on the previous possession off an offensive rebound to kind of keep new orleans in it and ingram again was maybe someone who could have been in in help position like never moves and towns banks in the game winner so i i thought it was uh pretty impressive for collins Towns. they ran most of the stuff through him anthony edwards didn't feel him that much he took a couple of difficult jumpers hit a three when they moved the ball out of that Carl Anthony Towns flare screen set, but it really was Towns that they ran the things through most of the way down the end. I like that Minnesota in this game, they had seven blocks, but those seven blocks you think of as like, oh, okay, that was Gobert. They had seven blocks by, I think, five different Wolves blocked at least one shot, which is pretty impressive because um, Gobert, uh, Gobert only got one, Towns got a couple, and so on and so forth. So that that's pretty interesting. Um, actually, before I forget, Minnesota's stats for the season because they're, they're doing really well and the the idea that net rating and offensive net rating in particular is getting getting more firm now is really good news for them. Nine and three, seven and one since last fifteen sixty. Fourth in net rating, plus seven point four. Fourteenth in offense, second number two in defense. And we've talked about how BPI is sticky. Well, it's moved on the Wolves. It was optimistic on them from the beginning. I remember it sorry, was fifty wins would be the two seed, ninety seven percent chance of making the playoffs. Yeah, pretty good. Uh, and they've uh, were excellent on this road trip. They did get smoked on the second night of a back-to-back Wednesday by the Suns in Devin Booker's return. And I think the the Suns are a team that I think can give them some trouble uh, because they're not necessarily reliant on getting to the rim as much. Uh, and oh, also what, like the yeah, good. One other note on the on the Wolves. I like to do this sometimes. I look ahead to what well, what are they going to do between now and the next time we talk about them? Here here are four of their next five games. Yeah, they're all they just home. finished a road trip, right? Yeah, so now they're home. Knicks, Sixers, Kings, then at Memphis, and then host the Thunder. That's a that's a, a stretch with a lot of teams with different strengths and weaknesses, different personnel, mm. a lot of games that I might end up watching. Th- Thunder Wolves is going to be a must watch. Like th- they're basically as opposite as you can get mm-hmm. these days. And yeah, Spur- uh, Sixers Wolves as well. Embiid has had his beef with both Gobert and uh, with Carl Anthony Towns in the past, so that that'll be fascinating. Also, yeah, how the wolf that's going to be. Uh, I can't wait to watch that one. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Th- this Wolves team, I mean, they're they're not like that explosive or fun to watch on offense, but the way that they play in their defense, like they do make for interesting strategic matchups uh, with a lot of these teams. Where are we going next here? A team that is a less interesting strategic matchup. 
matchup against the oh. Rockets right now, and that is the Memphis Grizzlies. Three and ten. They did have a win against the Spurs yesterday. I spared myself watching that one. Only a I negative. Had, I had it on my list too, and then went now. Yeah, I'll because there are so many other great games yesterday too. Uh, but they're actually at three and four since we last checked in on them, and. They haven't actually had like a terrible loss other than that one at the Lakers for the in-season tournament. So negative 4.7 net rating on the season for being 3-10. and 10, That's actually surprisingly good. 27th on offense, 17th on defense. They project for 34 wins. That would be the 13th seed in the West. I'm going to go ahead and, and put a pin in that right now that the 13th seed in the West will have fewer than 34 wins this season. Agreed. And they still are given 6% chance of the playoffs. How did things go early in the Marcus Smart at point guard era? Not great. And as longtime listeners will know, when a guy gets hurt, I use that as a time to to evaluate where things were because they're not going to add new stats to it. Smart, top line numbers, 12 and a half points, five assists, 2.5 rebounds in 30 minutes per game. All of those are basically in line with what he was doing in the more recent years in Boston, actually lower in assists. And when you think about what the Grizzlies wanted from Smart, and remember, they tr- I'll get into this a little bit later, but they traded for him after we knew that John Morant was going to miss an extended part of this year. And in part, as I think, because of that. Absolutely. 53% true shooting on 21 usage. Um, 25% assist percentage. That's lower than his career high, but but close to his career high. And the the efficiency is notable because Smart's actually making 57% of his twos. So that part's going really well. It's, that'd be the highest uh, conversion rate on his twos by a lot and the most in his career. But he's only shooting 30% on threes. And that, you know, Marcus Smart, a career 32%. So it's not like there's anything like dramatically yeah. off of that. He was supposed to be a shooting upgrade on Dylan Brooks. That uh, hasn't been the case so far this year. Oh, I mean, especially with Dylan early. Brooks shooting over 50% on threes. for Precisely, Houston. yeah. Um, one huge concern about Smart's numbers so far is that his restricted area frequency and success are both down. Instead, I brought up how he's shooting the best on twos of his career. That's from Florida range and from 10 to 16. And you generally, and, and when you consider some of the limitations of this Grizzlies team, like that, that you don't necessarily think that's going to continue. And barely getting to the line, um, just over two free throw attempts per 36 minutes, which is close to a career low. And I, I mean, some might crush smart because like the Grizzlies have about a 106 offensive rating that jumps to about a, a little bit under 114 when he sits. But the Grizzlies have significantly worse starters and a better bench. Like they have their starters are worse than other team starters by a greater margin than their bench. And I looked at looked into it a little bit, and there is a person who's credibly boosting Memphis offense. It's not smart. It's actually the player who has the largest role in their offense, and that's Desmond Bain. Bain, you know, like when he's on the floor, Memphis's offense is is better. And when he's off the floor, it's it's a lot worse. And so, you know, that the idea that Marcus Smart is the second or in some cases third most important player to the Grizzlies offense is both not a surprise, but also makes you know, that that this is they wanted him to be able to take on more when they acquired it. And Marcus Smart played the point guard role to some acclaim the last couple of years. And I think you can argue that the Celtics kind of took off when they made him the point guard. Part of that was because that just gave the other team nowhere to attack. There's no Kemba Walker or anything that you can go after on defense the Celtics. But they also are starting a, a lot of times or in a lot of these lineups uh, playing a stretch five, which uh, Memphis does not do. And they had a 
lot of other threats around Smart for him to distribute, and he was their best passer. He probably is still the best passer available right now on the Grizz, although Bain probably giving him a run for his money. And you know, those numbers, are, that 29 usage for Bain, that's impressive to, to me, and particularly the distribution he's had. So it, it may be, if they had any decent wings or guards, then mm-hmm. maybe you would just say, hey, start Bain at, at point guard. And even going back to two years ago, the Bain at point guard lineups uh, were pretty interesting. So perhaps what Bain is doing is, is a little bit of a silver lining for when Jock comes back that you can really say, hey, Desmond Bain is our second best offensive player on like a, a really good team. And maybe these guys can be more explosive offensively when Ja returns. But certainly as of right now, and again, part of the smart trade was to see how he looked with Ja. But rationale number one, as you noted, like, oh, he'll, he'll play point guard and kind of keep us afloat, play this dual role of BR Tyus Jones and our Dylan Brooks. He's been a lot worse point guard than Tyus Jones and a lot worse defender than Dylan Brooks so far where he really hasn't made an impact either. And and remember, they traded Tyus Jones, the 25th pick, which ended up becoming Marcus Sass. So there were other good players, it turns out, on the board there. And the Warriors 2024 first, which is looking a little bit more intriguing by the day. It's probably not going to be a premium pick, but it could be mm-hmm. a good one. And, and they gave up all that for, for Smart. And, you know, he's on a team-friendly contract, but not forever. All right, we got two teams left here. Kings or Spurs, who you want? Not the Spurs. So we'll go to the Kings. They are 8-4 and four on the season, 6-2 and two since last 1568. Mm. They're 13th in offense. Sorry, 13th in net rating, plus 1.8 per 100 possessions. 11th in offense, 15th in defense. 15th in defense is a pretty big surprise. We'll probably talk about that in a later a later time. Projected to finish with 43 wins, which would be the 8th seed, 62% chance of making the playoffs. And the Kings are taking 43% of their shots from long range. That is the third highest three-point attempt rate in the NBA. Yeah, and recall that they started 0-5 last year before their eventual 48-34 and finish. And the people thought that they were kind of in trouble after they lost that set in Houston by a billion points. But uh, overall, they've been outstanding. Uh, Seth sends us these reports that I, I think can be kind of interesting. Of course, we can say net rating on-off. But a lot of times it can be useful of like, what is the overall team performance in games when a player is available or not available? And I wanted to look at that with De'Aaron Fox because when a player is unavailable, it's not just, okay, what are they doing in when he's not available? But also just like, how does the entire team, the rotation throughout the game fit when this guy's available when they aren't? And they are five and one Fox plays, two and three when he does not. They got a couple of nice wins without him and they went to uh, actually no they must suck uh, uh without fox because they actually lost at, at chase center to the warriors which no one does except them uh, on a clay thompson buzzer beater but that was still a, a credible performance so we're only talking six games when he plays five when he doesn't they turned it over way more in games without him in just overall games when he plays 7.7 net rating in games he did not play negative 7.8 a lot of that at the expense of the rockets in games when he played 120.5 offensive rating 112.8 in games that he did not play and 12 percent turnover rate in games when he plays which is above average 16 percent when he's that which is off and personally for him usage is up to 33 turnover percentage is down from 11 percent, which is already very low to eight percent particularly when you consider how much he wow. drives transition that is incredibly impressive 
he doesn't get to the rim nearly as much as he used to. I think that's part of it also. Like he's become such a deadly mid-range shooter where he's been shooting probably unsustainably high even for him early on. But that's a big way to avoid turnovers. Like a lot of the guys who turn the ball over the least are guys who shoot a lot from the mid-range. So he's been a little unsustainably on fire with the jumper, taking more threes. He's shooting in the high 30s there. The, interestingly, again, this is not predictive, just descriptive. Uh, remember, they were way better with only Sabonis versus only Fox last year. That's totally flipped now. And the offense overall with Fox on the floor is a 121-105 when he's off. That's just pure net rating on-off, including games that he doesn't play. And they are plus 12.3 with De'Aaron Fox on the floor at the moment. How about their transition game, which was so vaunted a, a year ago? Uh, how much has that had to do with the, their solid start here? Not as much as you might think. And of course, some of that is attributable to De'Aaron Fox missing that time. Like Their their transition offense, like in terms of like points plus per possession, is actually lower this year, even when Fox is on the floor to when he was last year. But then the non-Fox minutes, it completely falls off a cliff their efficiency in transition their transition frequency all of those are pretty awful in the non-fox minutes yeah we will be doing the sacramento kings game against the pels tomorrow for nba league pass that is at what eight eastern five pacific is that right correct yeah so join us uh, on nba league pass if you're a subscriber as i suspect many of you are san antonio last and least the san antonio spurs Three and ten on the season, but oh and eight since the last yeah. fifteen sixty. They, they were three and two last time we talked about. Oh, they just beat the Suns two in a row. Victor scored thirty eight. These guys might be pretty good. Yeah, that is looking like it's more in the rear view. Um, thirtieth in net rating, negative eleven point seven is pretty horrendous. Like they're well behind everybody else there. On top of that, they're 29th on offense and 28th on defense, so rough on both ends of the floor. BPI projects them to win 20 games and not make the playoffs. Yeah, anything stick out in their overall statistical profile? Couple things. Spurs, good news. They do have the if you if you, they have the highest assist percentage in the NBA by a fair amount, almost seventy percent of all their made baskets are assisted. But second lowest free throw attempt rate in the NBA, and that that makes a lot of sense, especially when you think about the Spurs in their current form. They just don't have that many guys that like draw a ton of fouls. Yeah, Victor is really the only one you could point to. Uh, Devin Vassell is back to missing time with his groin issue. They've been starting Julian Champagny. It actually hasn't been too bad. But of course, their starting lineups have included Jeremy Sohan at point guard. Care to comment on the stats for those lineups, Danny? They're... I mean, so the Sohan at point guard lineups, they're below a point per possession on offense right now, which is pretty heinous. And so we're, we're defining this as Sohan on Trey Jones off. Um, yeah. And I mean, that's almost impossible to recover from, like being below point per possession there. Like even if your defense is good, you're going to be hard pressed to do that. And their defense has been terrible in those minutes too. And you could argue one of the theories behind it is like you're playing, you can play big at all five positions. Hasn't made that much of a difference. Yeah. And it's, and it's not like, a like, like, yeah. by the way. Their opponents are shooting about median on on threes in those lineups. They're, they are making a billion floaters, which you wouldn't expect to continue. But those lineups just suck. Yeah. The, they are not turning over opponents at all. They're actually below the median in defensive rebounding. Not too great when you're starting a seven-footer, a guy who's seven-five, and a six-foot-nine point guard. And opponents are just getting good shots at, and making them. The Spurs overall are getting completely destroyed at the rim. 
And then those offensive numbers, I mean, they are just turning the ball over like absolute crazy. And of course, never, ever getting to the foul line. And also they are 25th percentile in offensive rebounding sure. with that group, uh, which is also, I, mean, I think Greg Popovich is kind of from the get back on defense school. I think that's, there's maybe a time that that made more sense, but now teams are just more focused on running and uh, some of the more modern research has shown that it is possible to get back on defense and also hit the offensive glass. They are not doing that despite their size. One of the other wild, play, yeah. right, one of the other wild stats about the Sohan these lineups, they take almost thirteen percent of their shots as long twos. That is extraordinarily high. So that what that means is they're just not getting good stuff. No, they're not. And like Sohan takes a lot of these like off the dribble floaters. That's where a lot of his pick and rolls end up when it's not a turnover. And Victor is just taking a lot of bad jumpers. Vassell actually can make those. Like he he's a legitimately good mid range shooter. Nobody else. Is. In this group particularly is as Zach Collins little hook shots can be can be okay at times it looks like Charles Bassey may finally be relegated to the fringes of the rotation they went with a little more Sandro Mamukalashvili who gives you some shooting around Victor they've been moving to a, a bit more of Victor at center and certainly many including me have asked for more of Victor at center and and pointed to Chet Holmgren in a much different OKC ecosystem, of course, as a, a way in which Victor could succeed. He did have eight blocks in this Memphis game. And again, his rim protection will be a bigger subject of conversation. You know, Jonathan Gavoni talked on the Woj pod about how Victor and, and Gavoni has known Victor and, and the people around him for a long time, uh, how there might come a point where Victor is like, hey, you know, I know you're trying to like protect me and stuff. And I know I don't want to be a center. And, uh, you know, he doesn't have to play center on offense necessarily, although rolling to the rim, he could be very good or at least like, you know, pick and popping or something and then working in space on offense off of that. And so Gawain thinks like, hey, if we're just getting destroyed like this, like I want to play some more center. I'm not down to lose like this. The Wemby at summer lineups, however, are negative 17.8 net rating, 131 defensive rating. But I wouldn't go too far in saying that those won't be successful. Opponents are shooting ridiculous. 57% on floaters, 50% from mid-range, 46% from three in those minutes. So probably too small of a sample to say that those aren't going to work. And the half-court offensive rating with Wembenyama at center is a 104. So that's actually pretty good. And the biggest problem these guys have. I think it's a, uh, sorry, I think, I think it's a 114. Uh, half-court offensive rating. Oh, sorry. Sorry. Apologies. Yeah. Um, but yeah, oh, yeah, 114 overall, which is totally respectable and basically the only configuration the Spurs have deployed that is remotely respectable. But uh, yeah, they're quite in free fall. I mean, I think they'll, I'm just very interested to see if like, yes, like winning games is not the priority, but they've sucked so much. And, and I mean, I talked about this with you on Wednesday and John a little bit of like, you can't be this bad with Victor. Like they, they you can't just be like, this season is all about development. Yeah, let's keep running Sohan out there at point guard. Like we need to be respectable. We need to feel like we're at least improving. We're on the right track. You can't just be a total clown show like this all season when you got Victor Wembanyama in your program. And, and so I, I think that like, they'll, yeah. It's not like all of their players are having terrible years. Like Devin Vassell has been, has been efficient yeah. when he's been available, though he hasn't been available as much as they like it's just the overall kind of the complementary the non-complementary nature i guess you could better say of their talent and just kind of some of the stuff that they've tried to do yeah they, and they were actually in decent shape against memphis and they gave an 18-0 run in the fourth quarter they led most of the game before that all right we are done here this was a monster show 
West 15 and 60. We wanted to make sure we got all these 15 teams done, though, because uh, it's going to be a lighter week due to Thanksgiving. However, we will have a gamer for you Tuesday in-season tournament. First chance for some teams to clinch their ticket to the quarterfinals. And then we'll be back on Friday as well for the last of the... Is that the last? No, there's one more day of in-season And there's the Tuesday, that. the following yeah, Tuesday. The, well. Yeah, the final Friday that, that we will be doing. And so the, those will be our other two episodes. John and I will do an episode this week as well, probably on Tuesday. So we usually do three episodes at Thanksgiving. And uh, this was probably two and a half episodes worth of content anyway. So hopefully you uh, will enjoy your Thanksgiving and your, your travel. And we'll give you enough uh, for your ears. Thanks so much for being a subscriber on the free feed. And of course, on Dunkdown Prime, you'll get all the rest of those episodes. We'll talk to you all soon. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every goal, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a game-winning goal in the final seconds of overtime or a shot on the goal in the first period. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply.